Are we recording? Get the thumbs up. What is up, freaks? Joey Marty Bent here to introduce this episode of TFTC. It's brought to you by your good friends at Unchained Capital. I'm looking at some Unchained employees right now through the glass windows here at the Bitcoin Commons at the TFTC studio. I see Justin Moon. He's not part of Unchained, but I can just see a beautiful mullet. Uh, Unchained's here to help you eliminate single points of failure in your custody model. They're here to bring you financial services. They're here for Bitcoiners. Make sure that you're you're secure and that you have access to financial products. They have a white glove concierge service for their vault product, which is a two or three multi-sig uh, custodial collaborative custody. Not custodial, it's collaborative custody. You hold two keys, Unchained holds one key. You always have control of your sats if you have those two keys. If you're ever in a pinch though, you only have access to one key. Unchained is there to be the second in the two or three multi-sig quorum. Uh, this may be daunting for some of you guys. You guys, but if you have your coins on in exchange, that's a single point of failure. If you have them just sitting in a single sig wallet, it's a single point of failure. The exchange can get rug pulled. It could tell you, hey, actually, the government said you can't take your sats anymore. Um, so, so we're not going to send them to the the wallet that you like. Uh, single sig wallet, you lose your wallet, you lose the backup, you're shit out of luck. Lost your coins. Try to prevent that. Collaborative custody with Unchained. The White Glove Concierge Service is going to take you from zero to having a multi-sig vault set up. They're going to have multiple video conference calls with you. They're going to get you hardware wallets, help you get those set up. And then you're going to set up your vault and they're going to dump a thousand cuck bucks worth of sats into the vault. If you tell them that TFTC sent you, you're going to get $50 off that package. Go check out everything they have going on at Unchained from their loan desk, their IRA product, the vault, their blog at unchained.com. This trip was also brought to you by good friends at Brains. Brains. Team behind Slushpool. Team behind Brains OS Plus firmware. They're doing incredible things. The pool side, they've been around since 2010. Longest standing Bitcoin mining pool. They've weathered many storms. They've helped mine more than one point three million bitcoins since they launched they stay true to bitcoin brains was plus firmware that allows you to download firmware onto your asic which allows you to produce more hashes with that asic which then allows you to produce more sats with that asic okay if you're running an asic that is compatible with brains OS plus firmware and you're not running it you're leaving sats on the table you're being dumb don't be dumb download brains if it's available for you you also have brains, brains, insights.brains.com, B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com, insights.brains.com is a one-stop shop for all the data you need about the mining industry at any given point in time. It's got hash rate data, difficulty data, hash price data, mining pool data, profitability of individual machine models. It's a beautiful site. Daniel Frums, thank God he he had a hectic time during during the last halving and just had a bunch of tabs open. It was like, all right, I need to consolidate this. He and the Brains team consolidated it into insights.brains.com. They're also having a mining conference June 15th, 16th that week in Prague in the Czech Republic. We are an official media partner of that conference specifically due to the mining conference. I'm actually, I have my laptop on me right now. I'm going to make sure that this is the correct website, theminingconference.com. Where does it take me? Where does it take me? It's been the wrong. It's been the wrong. I've been sending you guys to the wrong. This this website doesn't exist. 
How come miningconference.com? Let me check. Nope, that one doesn't work. Let me get a brains. I'm actually shocked the brains guys haven't reached out to me. We're going to find BMC 2022. Oh, it doesn't even have its... It doesn't even have its own landing page. It's brains.com slash Bitcoin dash mining dash conference dash 2022. If you go to brains.com, it's, uh, it's up there. The Bitcoin Mining Conference 2022. Main event, June 15th. Side events, 14th, 16th. Sorry for sending you freaks to a website that doesn't exist for like the last three weeks. Go to brains.com. B-R-A-I-I-N-S dot com. Brains. This trip is also brought to you by good friends at Hoddle Hoddle. Who are here to bring you a non-custodial, no KYC, no AML lending platform. It too leverages Bitcoin native multi-sig properties. What you do is you put your Bitcoin up. If you're in a pinch, you want liquidity, you don't want to sell your Bitcoin, and you're willing to use stable coins, you put your Bitcoin up as collateral in a uh, two or three multi-sig escrow. You get stable coins in return. You go to lend.hodlhodl. You'll find this marketplace of people that are looking <clears throat> to lend out their stable coins to get yield on them. And you, you, they'll, they'll give you rates like, hey, here's the interest I'm looking for. You can negotiate. Say, hey, bring that down a little bit. Like, here, here's my collateral. You put your Bitcoin up as collateral. You get stable coins as long as you're paying that loan back, the principal plus the interest. You are going to get your sats back at the end of the day. And that's the beauty of uh, Bitcoin leveraging uh, the native multi-sig, or excuse me, hodl hodl leveraging uh, the native multi-sig properties of that exist in Bitcoin. Excuse me, I have people in the comments walking in and distracting me a little bit. Uh, you don't have control in this setup of the Bitcoin. However, since you do hold one of the keys, uh, you have visibility into the escrow account so that you know that your sats aren't being rehypothecated and you have certainty that if you're paying that loan back plus the interest, you're going to be getting your sats back at the end of the day. Go check all this out at land.hodlhodl.com. And Eastern Europe Conference is hot as well. The Baltic Honey Badger Conference will be back this year. I don't know if I'm supposed to tell you freaks that, but whatever, I just did. Last but not least, talking about conferences, we got one coming up here in South Beach, Miami, April 6th to 9th. Nice. The Bitcoin 2022 conference. going to be the biggest conference ever. World's Fair, Chicago. 1908, whenever that was. It's going to look like... What's it going to look like, Car? What's the world... The 1908 World's Fair. I don't even know if that's the year. In, in Chicago. That's going to look like... Hmm. Hmm. That's going to look like... That's going to look like a, like a couple of uh, SPCA people uh, on the corner like trying to annoy you. Like, hey, come talk to me. It's like, no, that's... The World's Fair is going to look like that compared to Bitcoin 2022. April 6th to 9th in Miami, South Beach, Miami. It's at the South Beach Convention Center. Okay, so it's the biggest fucking thing that's ever happened in the existence of conferences. Day one, the sixth. <coughs> <coughs> Such a big specter. I can't even talk right. I got I to drink some water. The sixth is industry day. If you're looking to get, if you're in the industry, if you're looking to climb up the industry, go to, you got to go to industry day. You're going to be bumping elbows with some heavy hitters. Some hitters. The 7th and 8th, 
and their general conference days. There'll be CEOs, presidents, President Bekele's coming. He's uh he's an avid canoeing. He's he's got an avid canoeing hobby, and he's just gonna talk about canoeing on stage. And they've got beautiful lakes in El Salvador. President Bukele likes to to pull his canoe out quite often and enjoy the scenes. And there's many intricacies that go into the the hobby of canoeing. And President Bukele is going to take the stage at Bitcoin 2022 and really dive into the intricacies that that exist when when you're canoeing. So you're not going to want to miss that. Michael Saylor is going to be there as well. Jack Maller is going to be there. (laughs) This fucking asshole named Marty Bent might be there as well. I hope not. I really hope not. Um, what else is going on? Richard Hart is in my is in my menchies. Fuck Richard Hart. Hopefully he's not at Bitcoin 2022. And if he is, I should call him out for being an accomplice to murder in Guatemala. Kidding. Hearsay. But word is on the street. Bitcoin 2022, day four, music festival on the 9th. Logic, Dead Mouse, Neil Young, and Joni Smith are going to be there. Um, but they're not actually like a part of the festival. They're going to be on the corner with the SPCA people um, begging for money because they kicked themselves off Spotify uh, in reaction to Joe Rogan. So if you haven't bought your tickets to Bitcoin 2022 yet, go to conference and use the code TFTC to get 10% off your tickets. Enjoy it, freaks. Okay. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. Probably should be. Oh. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, absolute pleasure, Marty. Well, I think uh, I think this is going to be a fascinating conversation. Like I said, uh, I reached out to you yesterday afternoon after listening to the podcast you recorded the on the Warren Newsletter podcast, and I was just extremely impressed with the nuanced perspective that you have uh, on the ongoing situation between Russia, Ukraine, the West at large. Uh, uh, sprinkling some de-dollarization between Russia and China as well. And I I think it's extremely important right now that people who listen to this podcast and may wander into this podcast understand a different perspective than what is being uh, parroted in the mainstream media right now, which in my opinion is is completely unorganized. There's a lot of uh, vitriol and uh, frankly fake news that's been spread over the last week and i think the again your perspective and understanding of this particular situation how we got here is just important for for people to hear so i think just to start um having followed the news of of the past week what has dismayed you at at how it's being covered by western media and, and corporate media at large well i think we could probably talk for days about this, but let's try and distill it down. I think, I mean, okay, we know there's a long-standing problem 
European attitude. I mean, it goes back to my childhood with respect to Russia. I mean, then it was the Soviet Union. It was the whole sort of Cold War era. And then even after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, and it became Russia, and, and then obviously all the states returned to their, and what they were previously, like the Baltic states, etc. The It's always been a significant problem. So therefore, to get any sort of objective view with regards to Russia is just simply doesn't happen. I mean, Putin will always literally be demonized where no matter what he says or does. And that, of course, blinkers a lot of people's perspective, as you say, to the nuance regarding, okay, what's what's the reality here? I mean, we can have this very binary viewpoint that, you know, it's like in this case, Ukraine's good and Russia's bad. And of course, it's far more complicated than just a very simple binary thought process. I think what also really hasn't helped in the last week, um, I mean, I'm only commenting maybe specifically on, say, the UK's perspective, but it's also European nations, where they've kind of talked in a way that's very high-octane rhetoric uh, with regards to Russia. And I think there was a statement made today because obviously uh, a few days, well, was it yesterday? They, the Russians started to sort of up the ante and talked about uh, basically putting nuclear deterrence in place. And it turned out they said it was because of comments made by Liz Truss, who's the foreign secretary in the United Kingdom. And I made some comments on my own podcasts where this kind of inflammatory uh, conversation is very damaging. And it also, I think, belies the fact that the there's a Western perspective at the moment that Russia isn't really serious about World War III. And we have to be careful, Senna, because it sounds extremely uh, sort of high-octane to even mention it. But Russia is serious, and the West is kind of dismissing it and going, no, he's just doing this for, for leverage with respect to uh, to Ukraine. Do I think Russia will have, we will have World War III? No, it's extremely, extremely unlikely. But they're making enough noises that, okay, there may be a bit of an attempt to, to leverage a situation, but I think largely it's to wake the West up and say, look, we, we are deadly serious about our stance on Ukraine. Whether you agree with it or not is not the, the point, because we had all that kind of toing and froing between Russia and the United States and the European Union. And I kind of separate the UK now because the UK is not in the European Union. And they sent them the security assurances, and they kind of just didn't do anything. They batted them back and ignored them, and and then just made some other reference to, to sort of intermediate-range missiles, which, of course, the U.S. walked away from, tore up the agreement during the Trump administration, and and even though the U.S. made out it was the Russians' fault. And therefore, because of this contact, it, it's feeding a media frenzy that people don't take this seriously, that clearly politicians don't take this uh, particularly seriously. And the other aspect that is very concerning is the fact that because of, and we can maybe talk in a bit of detail about this, is the kind of Russian military response or, you know, they declared war, went into to Ukraine. And because of their tactical response, there's people in the West going, well, they're losing the war. 
And the principal reason they think they're losing the war is because they haven't gone in as the US does, which it did in Iraq, and spent a whole month and basically flattened the entire country or all the infrastructure, and then afterwards walked in and uh, in the Iraq war in 2003. Russia's tactic is not to do that, and we can go into some detail about that a bit later on. But the point is that's also cultivating this attitude that, that somehow Russia's failing, Russia's losing the war. And then, of course, there's all the usual propaganda in the media, which lacks any nuances to, okay, are we given any consideration as to why Russia has done what it's done? Because it is a pretty severe step. It's not something they've done flippantly and on a whim. I mean, they made reference to it uh, previously. Okay, the invasion was a very significant development and step, and, and we can talk about why, from my perspective, They've done this because there's many, I think it's very multifaceted. Now, this isn't justifying what Russia's doing or saying Russia, should, you know, gives them you know, sort of free reign to, to do what they want to do and, and to exclude the West's perspective on this because absolutely not. But if we don't start to address the fundamental reasons, we don't understand why Russia's doing it. And we, we have this very dismissive attitude to Russia's military capability, its military tactics, and what it's actually telegraphing to the West, the US included, of course, and, and Europe and UK as obvious examples, then it's completely skewing per perceptions. And I think it's actually skewed perception in the corridors of, well, notional power in Western nations, in governments, prime ministers, presidents, who have got the same kind of flippant attitude that, well, Russia's military capability isn't that great. They're going to get bogged down in this war. They've, well, they've probably lost the war. It's all bluff and bravado, and we know it's not. And therefore, you know, it's, it's the age-old thing. One careless comment by some political leader could have devastating consequences because at the moment, the situation is pretty tense, and only requires one individual to say something that may be misinterpreted because I'm not convinced there's an awful lot of back-channel conversation, say, going on between the Americans and the Russians or any of the Europeans and, and the Russians. And therefore, you don't have that opportunity to, for someone to pick up the phone and go, look, I know this president or prime minister said this, but care to heat at the moment, don't worry, it doesn't mean that. Okay, okay, fine, and then they can hang up and get on. Like in the moment there doesn't seem to be this connect between you know NATO nations and Russia, and therefore the miscalculation or the risk of it could be potentially devastating. And I'm not kind of trying to sound sensationalistic, but we have to face the the, the reality that it is a tense situation and miscalculation is the one thing you have to avoid in the risk of conflict. And this applies to every single day the, the, of, of every single year, because I've made this point before that people will be quite shocked. What has to happen on a daily basis for us to go to bed at night and wake up in the morning? And the world's pretty much the same in the same state. That includes cooperation between so-called adversaries like the US and Russia or the UK and Russia or you know, and and or the European Union and Russia, for example, but not exclusively those nations, because 
there can be situations and there needs to be a cool head on the end of a of a back channel phone call that says, look, okay, yeah, we had a bit of a problem there. Apologies for that. Yeah, we shouldn't have flown in there or we shouldn't have done this. Or by the way, you need to be aware of this. Intelligence is suggesting there may be a potential risk in your nation. Okay, thanks very much. Hang up the phone. People don't understand that has to happen because despite all this rhetoric and bravado that exists on in, in the public sort of gaze and in the media, there's a very, you know, the world's a very complicated place and we have to be sure that we don't hit a proverbial tripwire and, and create a, an unnecessary situation. And that's, again, back to your point about nuance. Yeah. It's, um, it's extremely, uh, things are, are very fragile at the moment. And that's one thing. I think you highlighted yesterday on Twitter, like you've been saying this uh, in in your report, is that the, the U.S. is the emperor without clothes. And for me personally, watching this as an American and watching this all unfold, I'm just like completely disheartened by the lack of competence at the highest level of our government, the, the amount of hubris that exists there to, to take the situation lightly. And I've been called a Russian stooge, a pro-Putin stooge for trying to highlight this, like, hey... Our government's pretty much instigated Russia to the point that they're invading Ukraine, our governments and other NATO nations over the last couple decades. And uh, everybody's pissed off at Russia and Putin. But if you take a step back and try to dissect the situation, the history of Russia, Ukraine and NATO, specifically with the Minsk Agreement and um, the, the, the strong positioning by Russia, like, hey, we really would not like... Ukraine to join NATO or the EU because we don't want military bases, uh, Western military bases, pointing guns uh, from a country that's right next door at, at our country. Uh, and taking a step back and trying to understand the history and recognize like maybe there were probably uh, better decisions that could have been made uh, from a Western perspective that, that could have prevented an invasion uh, at some point. And this is, again, who's to say, maybe maybe Russia would have invaded Nonetheless, but I, I think there's a strong argument to be made that the, the likelihood of invasion would have been significantly lower if we just weren't instantly. Like, would you call the Western uh, or the United States and other NATO countries instigators in this instance? Well, yes. I mean, and I think we, we probably, again, we'll try and keep it quite brief. Otherwise, we could be spending hours discussing this. But we need, I'm not going to go back through all the history of Ukraine because, I mean, I'm not a historian, so I've got a friend who knows it far better than me. And, uh, but I just take it back in recent history since, obviously, the Maidan in 2014 with, when Yanukovych, not, whether he's a nice guy or not, not the point. He was democratically elected, and it's irrefutable that there was a color revolution and he was overthrown, and the United States was behind it. People may like to disagree, but it's you know, it's just irrefutable. So once that happened, of course, from the Russian perspective, they looked at it and went, hang on. Okay, th this is of deep concern to them. Now, the reason he was overthrown is because there's always been a kind of notional desire to integrate Ukraine into NATO. It's not like a recent kind of thought process in, in the United States, principally. 
but also maybe at some point there was uh, a viewpoint as well that uh, Ukraine could be absorbed into the European Union. And the reason Yanukovych was was deemed surplus to requirements is because he wasn't key on any NATO integration. There was a sort of proposal kicking around around that time for Ukraine to maybe join the European Union. And he was, uh, as any sensible leader would have done, and looked at this proposal and went, no, no I'm, not, I'm not joining on that basis because, I mean, I'm not, the, I'm not a fan of the European Union. Some of the aspects could, be, could have worked extremely well, but if you, when you start to try and marry disparate economies where like, and have the same kind of uh, currency between, say, Germany, Greece, et cetera, it's not going to work. So Yanukovych looked at these proposals and went, no, they're not acceptable. So we're not joining. So, of course, they were living. And, uh, and also, he'd show more and more desire for further integration with Russia. So when you put all those things in combination, he had to go. So, so obviously, he went. Now, the problem is in uh, sort of prior to him uh, being sort of uh, deposed as, as, as the president, there was a lot of uh, kind of Western influence and we'd started to see this rise of the far right. I mean, and it's, it's not an exaggeration to say there are neo-Nazis, as you might want to refer to them in, in Ukraine. And they were already starting to, where they sort of weren't, more like underground was becoming very prevalent and, and it was very obvious and their stated intentions has always been that they have extreme adversity to ethnic russians and we've already seen elements of uh, banning russian speaking uh, banning uh, russian publications and and effectively trying to sort of squash it it just mean quite a significant proportion of in sort of Donbass uh, regard themselves as Russian and speak Russian. So obviously in the aftermath of, uh, of the, the Maidan, I think it was grave concern in the Donbass region that, you know, there was a risk that, you know, of, of very livelihood, we could be threatened. And uh, it's been some pretty strong rhetoric floating around in recent weeks. The Russians have called it the genocide of uh, of people in Donbass, but but what's absolutely clear through all these skirmishes, it was particularly bad in 2014-15. Uh, there was thousands of of people in Donbass killed. Not all, because obviously there's a contact line between Donetsk and Lugansk, which they regard, you know, as as, uh, as independent republics in their own head, and they were fighting a war on the with the Ukrainians on the opposite side of the contact line, which was within. The oblasts, as they're called, between uh, Donbass, uh, sorry, of Donetsk and Lugansk. So there was, there, it got pretty, pretty sort of hostile 2014, 2015. It kind of was still happening. Where, and there were effectively, because it was a war, there was war crimes committed. There was houses being shelled, innocent civilians killed. And it was predominantly the Ukrainian forces. And I kind of made the point that. If it had been Russian separatists doing this, the Western media would have been all over it. The government, the Western nations would have been all over it and using it as a pretext to go in and deal with the problem. The fact they didn't implies there wasn't anything of substance to suggest that the Russian separatists were responsible for shelling homes, etc. I'm not saying it didn't happen because we don't know. 
because this conflict was going on for effectively eight years now. So obviously, from the Russian perspective, it's very controversial because they kind of were very concerned about Crimea because, again, Crimea predominantly regards themselves as Russian. Okay, there's a strategic element to it because they're stuck in the Black Sea. Uh, but they went. They didn't go in and just seize control. There was a referendum, and the people did predominantly vote to obviously become part of Russia. And they took that step. And okay, it was deemed to be highly controversial. And uh, and of course, it was the sort of the catalyst for the West put all these sanctions on Russia at that point in time. And then there's obviously been this this ongoing war. Uh, although it kind of calmed down, but it's still happening until probably two or three weeks ago, and then it really started to accelerate again. But we'd seen in the months, sort of back end of last year, November, December time, that it was a big buildup on the Ukrainian side of hardware, uh, personnel. It looked like there was some big offensive uh, going to happen. And the Russians clearly were aware of this. And their concern, as always, would have been, well, I mean, there's a lot of things where they said Russian forces were in Donbass. They weren't. I don't dispute for one minute they were providing arms. Because well, otherwise, how would, how would they keep fighting? There's, there's no doubting that, but they didn't have Russian personnel. The Russians didn't invade uh, Ukraine until, obviously, they declared war and then invaded Ukraine. But they were certainly supporting these so-called separatists in Donbass. So... There's this thing's been simmering for a long time. And, of course, the irony is that in 2014, when they put sanctions on Russia, and we'll come to the whole sanctions thing, which ties in with, with what's happened with China, et cetera, and all the de-dollarization, but we'll park that for a minute. But that, ironically, was a major catalyst for, for Russia to start to rethink, hang on. We've got big problems, and we need to start to take this seriously that we can't just dismiss these sanctions because there was kind of mutterings even back in 2014 that, well, we might exclude Russia from SWIFT. It was kind of muttered. Nothing of any substance obviously came from it, but the mere mention of it made Russia start to go, okay, we're going to have to reformulate our financial system, our economy. Uh, in terms of usage of the dollar, etc. So it was a, and it was a major step in Chinese-Russian relations, which were already pretty strong and growing, really since 2008, the global financial crisis. But then it really started to 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 gather momentum uh, in 2014 when they kind of announced the so-called Holy Grail Energy Deal, which was the power of Siberia, line one. Uh, which has been operational a couple of years or so now. So there is all this backstory. There is There was clearly issues. I think what sort of then became interesting was in about September last year, the U.S. started going, the, the, the Russians are massing 100,000 troops on the borders. Now, this narrative had been in Western media since 2016 on and off. And I looked at it and went, okay, why is it rearing its head? And then it caught, kind of got more and more sort of vitriolic. And at first, the Ukrainians simply went, I don't believe this. They ignored the Americans. And the Europeans weren't 
taking it seriously, uh, particularly. But then it's almost like a propaganda war in of itself because eventually the the fear was growing more and more. If you keep the Americans were really hammering this line, and the more it happened, I went, "This is this something's going to end up uh, occurring because of this." It wasn't just your usual the troops massing on the border and it dies a death a week or two later. This started to become the momentum was building, and it was starting to be very obvious to me that. The U.S. was pushing um, some some conflict or other in the future, and of course we had the failed color revolution in Belarus, which the Americans were behind, because the, in essence they were trying to do Ukraine 2014 Mark II, and uh, obviously that failed. Uh, we had the failed color revolution in Kazakhstan. And the Russians in by the CSTO, the forces went in. It was all over in a few days. But the minute there was protests, the, this for me, yeah, there's another color revolution. It was squashed, and of course, this infuriated the Americans that they failed in Belarus. They were furious that they, that they failed in Kazakhstan. But there was a precedent being set. And when the Kazakhstan happened, I went, okay, there's going to something's brewing with regards to Ukraine. And it was a kind of inevitability as we kind of got to the back end of last year that at some point something was going to happen. Now, it wasn't necessarily, of course, that at that point Russia was going to invade and by any stretch of the imagination, but the US was starting to push and they'd been pushing with China and Taiwan. And it was just for me reflective of the fact the US as an empire, the US as a nation, was really starting to struggle economically and financially. Geopolitically, it was waning very clearly. I mean, just look at the fact that how unceremoniously it was kicked out of Afghanistan and did nothing. I mean, it, you know, and it was just indicative of an empire that's been in decline for a long time. So there's kind of a desperation to, to pushing this angle with Russia. I mean, come on to why that's been the case and why. Russia is seen as a nemesis for, for the United States, but also, you know, how long is it going to be before, you know, we see something reignited between uh, Taiwan and China or the US will try to, they may not do in light now of what's happened with regards to uh, Ukraine because it, it's blown out of all proportion. I don't think the US thought the, the, the Russians would do what they do. They may have anticipated them going in saying, right, we're, we're extremely concerned that there's a huge offensive against uh, the Russian separatists. So we're going to go in, we're going to deal with that. And and they may have thought, okay, they're going to try and hive off uh, Gansk and Donetsk. Maybe they'll become independent republics. Maybe they'll just try and seize control of them and uh, like they, or, or how they perceive seize control, like what happened with Crimea. But of course, things completely escalated there to a level that surprised a lot of people. And I kept making the point Russia wouldn't unilaterally invade because, quite simply, they've had eight years to do that. they wanted to, they would have already done it. So the only way they would invade would be if there was an imminent threat to, to Donbass again. And they've made that point, and it was becoming very clear because even before they signed the cooperation agreement with Donbass, they said, any attack on any Russian anywhere in the world, we will respond to it. 
But I think there was an awful lot of other developments and all of a sudden it ceased to become just a Donbass issue. And it wasn't because, I mean, obviously there was all the issue of Ukraine's NATO membership and all these kind of security assurances that, uh, that Russia requested. But I think there was a whole, and we'll come on to this, some other significant reasons why from a Russian perspective they went, we're going to have to go in. And they made the point uh, straight out um, even I think Putin's address to the nation that we're going to quote I think, demil- have demilitarization, but also denazification. Uh, and until that objective's done, then we're we're not leaving. And therefore, once thing they they made that statement, then of course the invasion happened pretty rapidly. And maybe we'll part there so you can obviously come back in because otherwise we could ju- I could just talk nonstop for. For about a week, and then, which is not really the point of doing this. Yeah, I mean, I can I can listen to you talk about this stuff for a week if need be. But I think going back to a couple things, particularly, can you pull on the thread of the the color revolutions in Belarus and Kazakhstan specifically? Because this is the first time I'm hearing the uh, the theory that it was a color revolution in in those particular cases. And then another thing. I have another thing to touch on after that, which is like, comment on your comment that the U.S. and the Western world is probably at the end of its empire stage. I mean, it's just in, in what you have. Like, it's pretty obvious if you look at historical examples, whether it be Rome, and they had their their army spread thin across the world, and they were very inefficient and very ineffective towards the end of their empire, and that's sort of uh, how. Part of the reason why why they ended, it seems like we have a very similar situation here, particularly mm-hmm. with what's with what's going on in Russia. Like if you're looking at this as uh, as the United States or another NATO nation, and you understand the leverage that Russia has in terms of their control of commodities for that 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 the Europe specifically is very highly dependent on, and uh, it it just seems like an extremely idiotic misstep. And miscalculation on behalf of the Western world to to instigate Russia to this point when they have control of of natural gas that that Western Europe is highly dependent on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean the the whole premise, the way uh, the West behaving is is frankly ludicrous because yeah, if if you look at with respect to to the whole sanctions issue. Now, thus far, obviously, we, we can talk about not every sort of detail of these sanctions, but I think Gazprom came out today and said, we'll continue providing gas. But here's the thing is that if Russia was to, to, to cut off the gas, uh, and they're still getting payments because even though they put these sanctions in place, they're a bit half-hearted. It's a bit like, well, we're not going to sanction you over energy because we need energy. And they've even come out and made some very strange comments about, uh, about sanctioning banks and SWIFT by going, but if they literally, I, think, I can't remember who it was, one European leader said, well, if someone wants to make a payment to a relative, we'll allow that. Well, that's not how sanctions work. You're not going to, how do you distinguish who's a relative and who isn't? So I think a lot of these sanctions are just for public consumption. So, for example, like saying uh, with regards to sanctioning Lavrov and Putin, this is 
utter nonsense because they don't have any assets in the Western world. As though those two would have assets in the Western world. I mean, it's just common sense that that's not the case. So a lot of this is geared towards uh, projecting to to the populace that you know we're being tough on Russia because I mean, of course, the political capital is they have to say that. Even if they didn't really want to do this, and I'm not saying that's the case, they would, they've got no choice. Because if they don't do something, the Western people are going, hang on, you vilified Russia for as long as I can remember. You vilified Putin, and now suddenly you're not going to do anything. So I think the question is what you know degree of substance is in relation to these uh, sanctions. But if you truly cut Russia off from SWIFT, uh, and and therefore Russia would say, well, okay, you can't pay us for for oil and gas. So the immediate problem would be they would cut off they cut off the gas supply. Yeah, of course, Europe has got enormous gas shortages. Um, this is why they've got this huge hike in energy costs. Well, I couldn't say exactly, but maybe two weeks they would be there'll be no energy left. If there's no energy, Europe is going to collapse, as we know, because it's the, the lifeblood of a, of, of a nation, of the continent. If you don't have energy, you're in big trouble, and the same would apply to oil. And, of course, there are all the other commodities. I mean, palladium, I think Russia is responsible for about 45% of global production. Neon, which is needed in semiconductors, they produce about 90% of it, and the list goes on. I mean, Russia, as we know, produces enormous amounts of commodities if you if you cut them out the equation europe would would collapse very quickly and if a europe collapses bear in mind we have all the inflation problems we have supply chain issues where we then start to have societal breakdown pretty quickly and they didn't seem to i think again they they kind of the viewpoint well russia would never do that and the truth is Russia would be very loath to switch off the gas because, I mean, it's, you know, if, if, you, if you then look at the situation and go, well, we're responsible for it and the consequences. And, and all people in the West go, I don't believe this because Putin's a ruthless tyrant who wants to, to massacre Western nations given half the chance. Well, that's simply not reality. And we'll go into some of the tactics with regards to Ukraine, which proves that eloquently. But yes, they, they've made a grave miscalculation for a number of reasons. Potentially the risk of collapsing Europe, and not exclusively Europe, because the US imports a significant amount of Russian oil, although they don't like to admit it because everyone was supposed to be sanctioned. But as usual, when the sanctions were in place, the US ignores them when, when they need something. The other problem, or one of the major fundamental problems, and a miscalculation, is the world's looking at this situation and going, well, okay, Russia's invaded Ukraine. We're not supportive of that. But what happened? Because, I mean, the U.S. is, the de-dollarization process has come about because the U.S. has constantly bullied nations. If you don't do what we say, we're going to sanction or we'll have a color revolution, or you know, we'll just kill a leader, or we'll, we'll, we'll do something to, to twist your arm to make you do what we want you to do. The problem is, after this incident, whatever the, pers the perspective is with regards to the invasion, 
every nation on this planet will be looking at this and going, well, the Chinese and the Russians have been warning us to de-dollarize because of the US weaponizing the dollar. Well, here's an instance where notionally, whether it, it plays out in reality, they're sanctioning companies. They want to cut most Russian banks out of SWIFT. But now they're actually attacking the Russian central bank itself. I mean, this is unprecedented. This has not happened before. They're going to be looking at this going, well, what happens if they do that to us? I mean, Russia can will be able to deal with this because they have enormous resources. They have no net debt, effectively. They've got about $600 billion equivalent because they don't have dollars, but dollars equivalent in in reserves, et cetera, including, well, the gold, actually, they've got significantly greater amount of gold than they publicly admit to. But notionally, that's the belief. So they've got a caution to absorb this. There's a lot of statements in the West that the West controls all these uh, central bank reserves. It's simply not true. Russia would not given everything that's happened in the last eight years, expose themselves to not having access to to those forex reserves or equivalent. So that's the, that's the problem. Nations will look at this and go, well, we could be next. And most nations, if you did that, would, would collapse within, well, a day or two. I mean, I made the point on Twitter earlier, and with the West, if you, in principle, if Russia was able to, which of course they're not to to rest, you know effectively sanction Western banks, cut them out of SWIFT, sanction their their uh, central banks. The West would collapse in hours, literally within four hours. The whole system would, would fail. So that's the gravity of this problem. So it's just made more and more nations look at this and go, well, we kind of believed we needed to de-dollarize, and we already are starting to. Well, that's going to accelerate the de-dollarization process. It will accelerate Russia and China's plans, which have been in place for years. I mean, it was first said to me in 2012, well, this is the long-term plans, and this is what they're going to do because they know the Western financial system is, is finished. 2008 was that enormous wake-up call. Okay. There's all sorts of chicanery going on, and they've kicked the can down the road, and they've created this illusion that somehow it's uh, everything's fine, but we know it's not. So it's not like they haven't got alternative plans already. The West is worried as well that this will accelerate de-dollarization. I think Obama, of all people, in 2015 made this point. If we cut Russia out of SWIFT, it will accelerate that de-dollarization process. But the mere fact of what happened in 2014 had already started that acceleration process. He was correct, but it was already ongoing. So they have alternatives in place. And the question that the West is not even considering, okay, well, if China and Russia join this, who else is going to join? The ASEAN nations, possibly. Um, the Eurasian Economic Union, most definitely, which of course includes Belarus as well. Uh, and one of the nations, I mean, we've seen some very interesting meetings recently between the Brazilians and the Russians and the Argentinians and the Russians, and they're talking about military cooperation, et cetera. So there's a huge geopolitical map that's been drawn in a multipolar world perspective for years, and the West has largely been oblivious to it. Uh, so the, the, the threat, therefore, is that you're just encouraging 
nations. You're actually digging, you know, your own grave, so to speak, because you're you're demonstrating everything the Chinese and the Russians been telling huge swathes of the world. They're weaponizing the dollar there, and nations know it because they've suffered regime change, they've suffered wars, they've suffered uh, enormous economic hardship. Uh, austerity and then just stealing their assets, etc. So it's not something that is is a mystery to most of the world. But this was is probably, I mean, the worst decision that that the West has made, and, and Europe effectively is being bulldozed into doing this. They didn't want to do it, but uh, Biden let the cat out the bag, so to speak, when he made the point. And I don't think he should have probably said this, but he did. He goes, well, there was two alternatives. We either have sanctions or we have World War III. So if you're sat there being constantly kind of bullied into putting sanctions and SWIFT and cancelling Nord Stream 2 or suspending, should I say, Nord Stream 2, and you keep going, well, we don't want to do this, and, and nations didn't, then suddenly they all fell into line. Well, logically, it was the United States went, well, it's sanctions or World War III, and they went, well, we obviously don't want World War Three. Okay, we'll go along with sanctions, but I don't think they're willing accomplices because somewhere people must understand the risk, that the significant risk, and they're kind of that's why they're trying to cherry pick their way through this and go, well, you you can pay, for, we'll pay for energy, and there may be other commodities. So, I mean, effectively, they're keeping the trade open with Russia, and this is all very cosmetic nonsense. I mean, with regards to to Russian banks, which most of them function domestically. So SWIFT can't touch them anyway. Okay, there's some international trade, but they can easily find the different ways around that. With SWIFT, you can just piggyback off another foreign bank somewhere who in a sympathetic jurisdiction and, and SWIFT becomes irrelevant. So it is cosmetic, but it's the, it's the perspective that the world sees this in the multipolar world environment. And also, at some point, there's an argument that some heads inside or cool heads more inside Europe will start to go, we're, you know, we're in this abusive relationship. And they are going to potentially suffer consequences. It depends how this accelerates, depends on what the United, the United States insists. But if they really keep pushing and extending sanctions, there may come a point when your energy does get cut off. And if energy gets cut off, then Europe's going to collapse very rapidly. And if Europe collapses rapidly, bear in mind they're telling their own nations. Uh, like uh, in, in the Netherlands, for example, they've gone, well, we may have to suffer a bit economically and, and a bit of price inflation, but you know, it's a price worth paying for the freedom of Ukraine. Well, if it doesn't play out that way, which it would in, the, in an extreme case, then they're going to have political backlash in it, well, enormous. So in these nations, because they're going to say, well, you told us this, and now we've got huge price inflation. In fact, we've got no energy. Hang on, there's a total miscalculation. So politically, it would create enormous problems across Europe. So it's a total miscalculation on every level, no matter what our perspective is with regards to why Russia eventually invaded. I know there was a lot of rhetoric about Russia invading, but Russia wasn't going to invade. But so, like everything, there was these red lines. Um, some of them were more long-term red lines, like absorbing uh, Ukraine into NATO. 
or putting missiles pointing at Russia in, in Ukraine or U.S. bases, officially at least in Ukraine, or a NATO presence. Um, these were the obvious ones, but they weren't going to happen overnight. I think the other one was, was obviously absorbing uh, Ukraine into the European Union. Would have been a, a lesser concern, but still something that would bother them. And, and I think the other issue, of course, then was Donbass. So that clearly was an issue. But bear in mind, as we said, Donbass has been rolling on for eight years. It, that for the Russians to suddenly go, hang on, now this is, we're really concerned was, I think, because they, I think there was a provocation to cause an all-out war like we've never seen in Donbass, which where they would have had the heavy artillery and the, and the, the Russian control, the Russian separatist controlled areas would have just been blitzed. And that was a point when the Russians went, sorry, that is not happening. It's one thing having these skirmishes and we've been pretty patient not getting involved then. It's, it's a bridge too far. So that absolutely was part of the reason, but not entirely. Yeah, it's a complete shit show. And going back to yes. Biden's Biden's framing of you have sanctions or World War Three, it's completely irresponsible. It's not the only two options here. Like diplomacy is definitely on the table as well. If you mm-hmm. have the political will to to actually extend a hand and attempt to meet at the table, and it, it, again, it just highlights the, the the level of complacency and again miscalculation that that exists in the western world it's mind-blowing like how terrible this is all unfolding how terrible this is going for the west and that's like the creepiest thing about the coverage over the last week is everybody is basically saying oh like we're, we're going to defeat russia their their army's weak they're they're going to lose to the, the insurgency in ukraine and, and like you said when that doesn't come to pass and, and these sanctions prove to be as toothless as they actually are. And it's going to be insanely obvious that, that this last week, I tweeted this out yesterday, this last week will be pinpointed at some point in the future as the final nail uh, 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 in the coffin for the US dollar being the reserve currency of the world. Like you, like you said, the reaction um, by the US government and Western nations to this is just very acutely highlighting to, to other nations, all right, we have to start thinking about alternatives. The bullying doesn't seem like it's going to stop. You have a, I mean, we literally have a president his obvious degenerative decline. Um, yes. And is, is, I don't know if he's controlling this, but he's the face of the reaction to all this. And it's just, again, like we'll look back in history at some point in the future and be like, oh, you, you had a, a Caligula uh, at, the, at the helm. Uh, at this uh-huh. point in U.S. history, and again, as an American, it's extremely worrying and disheartening because I do believe that we have the the, the ability, if we have the will, to to bring it to fruition to to right the ship. Like we should be energy independent. Energy policy is something I've been very passionate about the last couple of years because it's completely mind blowing how we're just making ourselves completely dependent and insecure from an energy perspective, shutting down pipelines, uh, not allowing people to frack on federal land, uh, trying to transition to unreliable renewables like wind and solar hastily uh, and idiotically, and having the example of Germany doing doing so over the last two decades with terrible consequences. And 
I'm rambling here, but it's just completely mind blowing how sloppy the reaction to the situation is on, uh, uh, from a Western perspective. Um, and the lack of understanding of the mass public, everybody thinks everything's hunky dory. It's, uh, it, it does feel like late stage empire, uh, collapse is upon us. And most people don't even fucking realize it. Sorry for cursing. No, no, you, 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 you're absolutely right to curse about it because it is very frustrating when most people don't see the reality of what's unfolding. And I think it's a good point to talk, actually. Let's, let's talk a bit about the Russian military in reality. Now, if we go back to the whole kind of Georgian war in 2008, Russia was a mess. I mean, there's, there's no doubt that as an army, they were ill-disciplined, very sloppy. And I mean, not that I'm advocating war because I despise war, but I'm just saying in the context of their military. And sort of there was a realization we are going to have to revolutionize the, the military, including training, including military hardware, tactics, everything. And they went through this revolution in the last, what now, 14 years. And the West still thinks that Russia's military is like it was in 2008. They should have had a bit of a wake-up call with Syria uh, when Russia went in in 2015. They didn't. And the other aspect to, to Russia is, of course, not just to talk about battle-ready uh, you know, army personnel, navy, etc., but missile defense systems. The S-400, they've got an S-500. The West has gotten can't de- can't deal with those. The the other thing, of course, is Russia always comes out and says, "Well, if we've got the S-400, there are always two or three iterations ahead." In reality, Russia already has in development an S-700. And I can't remember who it was. Someone in the Russian military kind of came out with the comment once a couple of years ago and made a joke about it, but it wasn't a joke. They were basically saying, you know, look, we have S-400s, 500s. So their missile defense systems are un, uh, un, unprecedented, which is why more and more of the world want S-400s, even the 400s, like even Turkey who's a NATO member. India and the list goes on. In terms of their hypersonic missile technology, they are light years ahead of the West. And I made the point, there was a speech Putin made to, to the Duma back in March 2018. And on my own podcast, I said, this is the game changer. This is the moment when the world changes in a military perspective. Because They've been developing all these technologies, but he came out and basically said, we have this technology and and there is nowhere else in the world that has this technology. Now, most people in the West think this is a lie. And they think that when even Pentagon officials admit they can't, you know, they don't have an answer to Russia's hypersonic missile technology, they think that's just an excuse to, to you know, ratchet up the, the, the military budget every year. But the reality is the Americans are the cooler heads know that they have no answer to, to Russia's hypersonic missiles, and they're constantly developing them. And in, the U.S. is trying to develop them, and it's failing. But even if they were to catch up with Russia in, in two or three years where Russia is now, which they won't do, Russia's going to be iterations ahead because they're already constantly redeveloping. But not that I think there will ever be World War Three. But 
if there was, the West wouldn't have a hope in hell. And hell's probably an awful word to use, but they were just, oh, we are sitting ducks. Not least, if you look at the US, it's, it's missile defense systems on the West and East Coast are useless. The, the other thing is, if they were to launch these hypersonic missiles via the South Pole, they've got nothing. The US would just have no answer to it. The other thing is with the speed, with their, their, the way they're able to literally turn on a proverbial sixpence. And, and the US was shown this technology. And of course, they had an aneurysm because privately, not publicly, they know that they, they are sitting up, which kind of makes well, this whole debacle with regards to Biden coming out and talking about World War III. I mean, in reality, anybody in the U.S. military who, who understands reality knows that the, the U.S. will never want to go to have World War III because mutual assured destruction is not really what we should be thinking about now. We should be more concerned about the, the fact that, that Russia could, mute, not mutually, could destroy huge swathes of whether it's the United Kingdom, Europe, or the United States, and we wouldn't have really much of a response. We don't fully understand the extent of their missile defense system, but the S-500 can basically take things out at altitudes where, which is unprecedented, and they're highly accurate. So the chances are even if we were to launch a nuclear assault, most of them would be shot out of the sky. And if not all of them. And what's our response? We don't have a response. And there'd be devastation for the West. So people in the West just don't believe this. And this is conditioned because a lot of politicians don't believe it. People still think it. I mean, I come back to my analogy. There's a lot of people who think Russia's the 1980s, that it's communist, that it's got a, a completely dysfunctional society. Economically, it's failed financially. Its militaries are shambles, which it was. But Russia's nothing like that. But that's, again, this media perception. So that's the fundamental issue with regards to, to Russia's military capability. And then we come to Ukraine and all this miscalculation and, and bravado that Russia's failing in Ukraine. Well, Russia isn't failing because its tactic was clearly initially in the first couple of hours, they took out enormous amounts of the military infrastructure, aviation, controls, centers, everything. They blitzed them with high-precision weapons, and they were gone. So they lost a lot of their capability. Uh, then, they, and this is where the West miscalculated. First off, there was a 24-hour period where they, they suspended military operations because there was a belief that uh, Zelensky was keen to talk a ceasefire, but I think it was just stalling, or maybe he was, the Americans told him not to. But apart from that, their tactics being very simple. They're using very, very basic military equipment. They're not using kind of artillery that would just blitz everything. And there are a number of reasons for that. One, they don't want high civilian casualties. Two, they want, don't want to blow up all the infrastructure because their attitude is, okay, even if we don't want Zelensky as president, we don't want a nation that needs rebuilding. We don't want to, the, the perception in Ukraine is that you're, you know, you're trying to kill all the civilians. They know the perception in the mainstream media in the West is going to accuse them of this, but it doesn't, they don't care what they think. They care what the fact the Ukrainian people will remember 
that they didn't blitz the country, that they didn't just kill civilians. Okay, there are going to be civilian casualties. Let's not deny that. But you want to minimize that. So therefore, you're going to have a more prudent approach. They're not just going to walk in into Kiev and just bomb it all. So what they've done is they've tentatively kind of gone in, looked at what to assess. And when the West was going, they're all backing out. That's a reconnaissance. You're looking at what, what the military capability is in Kiev. Specifically, you know, and you just back out slightly. And what they've done is they encircled Kiev. They did it with Kharkov. I think they're in the process, not yet of Mariupol, but they've kind of formed this cauldron, which means they're effectively sandwiching them in. And once they've encircled them and they understand what they're looking at, then they'll start to move in. That is, I hate to say this because I, I hate war, but but it's it's solid military tactics. It's it's a, how you'd fight a war in the 21st century. And people seem to think that if Russia's not flattening the whole country because that's what the US does, then somehow they're failing or the their tactics are failing or you know they're losing the war. And I made the point if if they're losing the war, why is uh, Zelensky releasing prisoners who've got some military experience and saying, well if you go and fight you can you can be released from prison or why? And they are, because I know people inside Ukraine who've told me they're trying they're forcibly conscripting 18 to 60 year olds. You don't do that if you're winning a war. You do that because you're losing the war and you literally need personnel. I mean, the ludicrous situation like arming people like me, who's you know, never fired a gun in his life, who don't have any understanding. I mean, if you gave me a gun and said, shoot some Russians if they come near, I'd be dead in 10 minutes. And the other problem is because Ukraine is a complicated nation. There's been people getting guns and shooting each other, Ukrainians killing Ukrainians. Because, and that, you know, the, this is again part of the nuance of, of the nation. Okay, it could be neighborly disputes, whatever, but it, there's something a bit more of substance to it. So these were crassly irresponsible decisions and desperation, but Russia has obviously made significant progress going kind of north of Crimea through the Donbass region in northeast Ukraine, and obviously. I don't know where we are specifically now, but they'd encircle Kiev. Um, and obviously, that's kind of the line with the Dnieper River, which kind of snakes its way kind of halfish through through uh, Ukraine. They haven't moved through the whole of um, the east up to the Dnieper because they, probably, they don't need to. There's not, they're obviously dealing with the major cities, which is where obviously the other thing is, of course, I have to deal with is that these. Uh, far-right neo-Nazis are using people as human shields. I mean, they're putting weapons inside housing estates. I mean, it's the classic tactic because, okay, the Western media is portraying that the that, that Ukraine's winning and they're trying to, you know, it's all the propaganda, but the real war at the moment, Ukraine isn't. Ukraine is losing very badly. There's been a lot of Ukrainian military defecting to the other side or just handing in their arms and saying, we don't want to fight. And the other part is that Russia's attitude is, okay, we don't know who's going to end up, and I don't think Zelensky will end up staying as president. I, I don't. I think he'll probably be shipped out and end up in the US or somewhere eventually, because he's already been offered that option. But, okay, there's an argument that Russia would want a pro-Russian president. You know? I mean, let's not 
dispute that. That's a statement of your. But therefore, for that president to stay, you don't want to blow up the country or the infrastructure. You don't want to kill massive amounts of civilians. And you also don't want to, to kill as few a Ukrainian military personnel because you're going to need them in the future. You're going to rebuild the nation. If, you, if you've alienated them, what's going to happen? If you put a, a sympathetic Russian president in, not going to last five minutes because that army will remember what happened during this war. So they're the reasons. And again, that's the, the lack of nuance uh, in the West. The, the West doesn't report this and, and everything's portrayed as, as a weakness. But the Russians thus far haven't displayed any weakness. And in reality, given, given the size of their operation and the time they spent not doing anything, they've actually removed, moved to, to sort of key objectives pretty quickly. What? They're going to do in the long term. I mean, what happens with the West of Ukraine, et cetera? I, at this point, we don't know. But if they want to have demilitarization of the entire Ukraine, well, there's military in the West. So they're obviously going to have to comb the entire country. But is Russia trying to conquer Ukraine? Absolutely not. It has zero desire to, because Ukraine's a, a failed state, not just economically, financially, society. It's just an ugly, horrible mess. That's being created effectively by the West, not just exclusively the United States, because I don't want to keep pinning everything on the US, but the whole West NATO response is is responsible for a complete failed state. So Russia wouldn't want to stay in that because how are they going to handle that? They've got their own problems to deal with domestically. They don't want to be saddled with a nation. I don't know how many will eventually leave Ukraine as refugees. But there's currently about 42 million, I don't know, something like that, Ukrainians. It's a large country. I think it's 600,000 square miles. It's a big country. So you wouldn't want to be saddled with that. There's no economic reason for, for Russia to be there in any way, shape, or form. So they will do their job. Okay, what does that mean in reality at this stage? We can't tell because there's the fog of war and we don't know what. Russia's military operations are. We, we've learned some things already, but what's their long-term objective? We don't know. But the objective is they're not going to stay in Ukraine. And the West is trying to make out in some quarters, they're trying to rebuild the Soviet Union, which is nonsense. Yeah, and I think maybe that's something we should highlight too, is how the Ukraine has been left out to dry by NATO nations. Right? I mean, there was a lot of pressure from the EU, the US, and the Western world saying, all right, posture this way, posture this way, posture this way. And then shit hits the fan and they're nowhere to be. I mean, the US didn't come to the defense. NATO nations didn't come to defense physically. And that's because they know, oh shit, like Russia's not messing around. Like, we, we can't go in there. Um, sorry. Uh, there's nothing we can do. Zelensky, if you want to ride to the US, you can take it. We'll, we'll offer you that, but that's about it. Yeah, that was one of the huge problems that's been, and that this is where culpability comes in because it's very clear for a number of years that they were emboldening Zelensky with these kind of idea that you know, well, you could be part of NATO uh, or you could be part of the European Union. Okay, even large sections of the European Union admit that's some way off because they have a some because they know fundamentally it's a failed state. Uh, 
but they've emboldened. They've obviously been given um, so-called defensive weapons, but you can guarantee there's offensive weapons. They've been effectively bankrolling the, the Ukrainian military. And, and that emboldening has, has given Zelensky ideas above his station and above reality. So, of course, and, and it's very symptomatic of the U.S. policy, because you're absolutely right. The one thing the U.S. didn't want to do is have the forces that apparently aren't in uh, Ukraine facing off against the Russians because the optics of, of these forces coming up against the Spetsnaz or even worse, the Chechens, who are now kind of somewhere in Ukraine. And if they're needed, they're, they'll, they'll, they'll deal with the guerrilla warfare element, which obviously this far right contingent that's what they're looking at guerrilla warfare but going back to the point that uh, with regards to to uh, the us they clearly went we can't we can't have this optics of all these people coming home in body bags so let's pull them all out we pulled everyone out i think there's some mercenaries still there in some capacity i don't doubt that but they pulled all the personnel out note they've now pretty much pulled all us personnel out of uh and they went from Kiev to Lviv and then went to uh, now in Poland. They've moved them all out because, again, it's the optics. They can't, you know, they don't want to see, you know, diplomatic personnel being killed. But I think what was also telling was the way the U.S. was starting to destroy all hard drives, computers, everything in Kiev. They didn't even they didn't take them with them. They just destroyed everything. Which I think comes part of the reason again, and I think maybe it's a good point now to discuss. For me, there's a whole bunch of reasons why Russia went into Ukraine. And we've, we've mentioned the obvious one of Donbass and the, the threat of the, the, the risk to ethnic Russians from far right um, elements within Ukraine. That's a very obvious one. But I think the other thing that was for me very telling was how quickly the Russians made a move to secure Chernobyl. Now, anyone knows in history, Chernobyl was obviously a massive accident in 1986, huge radioactive leak, which actually at the time was, there was huge radiation all over Europe, including the UK. And obviously it's encased in concrete you know, and this huge metal structure, but they made a beeline to protect uh, Chernobyl. And interesting, they're sharing control of that protection now with Ukrainian forces. You have Russian and Ukrainian forces protecting Chernobyl. Obviously, it's not a, a live reactor angle, but obviously you have to replace it, and it'll, it'll be like way for 10,000, 20,000 years. So obviously, for me, that was indicative of, A, they both regard the fact there's a common enemy, they're concerned that someone could have, and I'm speculating here, I will always say when I'm speculating, but some there might have been a missile strike on it, which could have breached the casing, causing an enormous radioactive leak, which would have engulfed Europe, as well as Russia, of course. And I think that is another reason why they went in. And as ever, the Americans have this tendency to telegraph future events. I mean, we saw it in Syria with Assad, where... They're accusing, we, we have understanding that Assad's going to have a launch some sort of chemical weapons attack. 
And then two weeks later, it happens. And it was nothing to do with the Senate. So when they started talking about chemical weapons provocation inside uh, Ukraine, I think that was a, a red line. Russia went, hang on. A, there's Chernobyl. B, we know there is, I don't know how many Pentagon-sponsored biolabs inside uh, Ukraine. We don't know what goes on. Let's be honest. They're underground. What did the Russians do? They went and, and destroyed them all with high-precision missiles. Well, 13, I think, have been destroyed. Again, I think that was another reason because there was a concern about the risk of biological warfare, chemical warfare, or who knows what. It was maybe the Russians know what goes on there, maybe they did, but they certainly knew where the sites were and they've destroyed them all. I think that was another motivation for going in. I think in a general sense, I, I can't believe well, I can believe that Russia didn't know the extent of just how dysfunctional, and I'm, and I'm saying that very politely, that the nation is. What this far-right influence has done, I suspect, they came across intelligence. Uh, because this, this has been going on for years. It's, it's, I'm, not, I'm not saying as, as potentially aggressively as it could be in the future, but there has certainly been reports of things going on with, regards to people disappearing and, uh, and all sorts of manners of disgusting, despicable things happening. Now, it's entirely possible that the straw broke the proverbial camel's back and the Russians suddenly looked at things. Or they, We know there was um, certainly cyber attacks, including Ukrainian defense um, establishment. Maybe... They came across a whole bunch of intelligence that led them to understand things that were happening in Ukraine they previously didn't. And that was another reason for them to go in. And when they started to talk about demilitarization, I don't think it was exclusively like surface-to-air missile and all that kind of thing. I think it was these bio-labs, bio et cetera. But denazification for me was a very telling statement because that was effectively saying, we want to to eradicate this problem out of Ukraine, and they'd never made these references before, in to that extent, in in all the years that things have been going on. So I think there was these were multiple reasons for them to go in, and their intention, therefore, was to to make to make sure there was no military military hardware infrastructure, anything, everything was to go in, in Ukraine. And also, they came out with a pretty bold statement that they had intelligence on, they said, 5,000 individuals, they obviously named them, that were responsible, they said, for war crimes and other things. And they want to have some kind of tribunal where these people will be adjudicated. Now, okay, is that a reality? Will it ever happen? It doesn't matter. The mere statement suggested to me they suddenly became aware of the gravity of a problem that was existing inside Ukraine that previously they weren't aware of. And there's an argument to say it sounds unbelievable they weren't aware of it. But okay, even people like me who've talked for quite a few years about problems in Ukraine didn't know the gravity of it. It's one thing knowing there's problems. It's another thing knowing the extent of the problem and what's actually going on. And, and I think there is a number of pretty disgusting things going on I mean, and I've heard for years about human trafficking, organ trafficking, 
massive forced prostitution rings, the list goes on. I mean, and I don't even want to venture into other things that could be going on. But the point is, it is a totally failed state. And I think there was a combination of all these things where Russia suddenly went from, okay, we can argue that the green light was they signed a cooperation agreement with Donetsk and Gansk, which gave them a green light because part of the agreement was if we feel threatened by the Ukrainian forces over the contact line, then Russia can be called upon to come to our aid. They, they made that comment. Russia went in. For me, what I think was telling is they were far more interested in not actually intervening in Donbass specifically, although there was some assistance provided. The forces went elsewhere, which kind of suggested to me that, yes, we need to deal with Donbass, but there are far greater problems that we need to address. And I think, in a way, the Donbass aspect was just an excuse and a vindication for a not not an excuse to go in for no reason, but a vindication to go and deal with a whole bunch of, of other pretty serious problems. Because here's the thing, if, if we talk about false flags, what would have happened if there was a false flag in Chernobyl and it was pinned on the Russians? Oh, well, it's a stray Russian missile and it's caused this enormous environmental catastrophe in, in across Europe. And obviously with winds, but the way are eventually it can end up all over the world as has happened uh, during the time of the original incident in Chernobyl, that would have had devastating consequences for Russia, for, for obvious reasons. So if you believe that to be, to be a risk, you would want to make sure that didn't happen. And I think also the fact they've said to, to the Ukrainian forces, we want you here as well, is they want Ukrainian forces to independently verify what's going on. So. They can't then be accused of, well, you were responsible for something. I mean, I don't think that's an issue now. I think destroying the biolabs has removed that problem. But if if you could have pinned that on Russia, that would have it would have changed the whole complex of global events, the multipolar world, the, the US position with regards to, to Russia being totally vindicated. Uh, so I think that was certainly a huge uh, reason for why uh, Russia did the things they've done. Yeah, you, you can see with the propaganda coming out of the West now, they're, they're just looking for something to, to pin on Russia so that they can paint them as a bigger boogeyman throughout all of this. And it's, uh, it's, extremely, <laughs> it's extremely alarming that we've gotten to this point. And uh, we could dis- dissect exactly what's going on, the history, uh, the intention behind Russia's invasion, particularly, but I think this is a good point in the conversation. Thinking about, all right, moving forward, what happens? We, we've talked about de-dollarization. Like what, like how, if at all, can this be de-escalated? What does the world look like where the de-dollarization accelerates again? I think we're going to look back a decade from now maybe even sooner and be like, all right, this was the week where the U S dollar as a reserve currency, of the world officially died. Um, what, what does a de-dollarized world look like moving forward? Obviously Russia and China specifically have been accumulating a large stockpile of gold over the last two decades. There's been rumblings and posturing, uh, between those two countries, particularly about beginning to settle 
commodities contracts uh, in their native currencies. I believe last year, late last year, we had an instance of Russia and India doing an arms deal uh, that was denominated in rubies and rubles. Uh, And today, earlier today, Russia, I'm not sure if you saw it, but Russia came out and said they they want to unveil a a one world digital currency uh, moving forward. And and I, I think this is actually one of the most interesting topics of our time right now as we and transition further into the digital age is all right. Like obviously, the U.S. having the dollar as a reserve a currency of the world has given a lot of power and given it the ability to to bully the world to an extent for a long period of time. Again, that seems to be coming to an end. Where do we go next? I know that you're big on gold and silver as hedges against uh, dollar inflation. Uh, I, this is a Bitcoin podcast. I am partial towards Bitcoin uh, being a solution to this problem of all right. How do you how do you get an apolitical, more fair uh, monetary system in the digital age? Uh, but yeah, I think the the next five to ten years are going to be insane in terms of you know, a monetary uh, system. Monetary system changes globally. Yeah, this this is a ginormous subject. Uh, let's let's just pick on certain bits from a from a uh, Chinese and a Russian perspective. What I can tell you, because I've I've said this before, and a lot of people for years went, "I know, this is a bridge too far." I can't believe that, that what you're saying is true. And there were people in the late sort of late nineties at the kind of cusp between the Yeltsin and Putin era. And they went to the Russians and the Chinese and, and they said, look, you know, the West has gone through the financialization of economies and it's going to it's doomed to fail. And it was very obvious it was doomed to fail. Though even during my early career in the financial sector, I was looking at things going, well, yeah, I can see why this is just doomed to fail. Um, and they said to the, to the Russian and the Chinese, look, you know, and these people I know personally, they're not affiliated to governments. They're just very smart people, visionaries. Who, who went and said, look, the Western financialization is going to kill eventually the Western financial system, the dollar. And they took them seriously. I mean, they, they said, okay, why do you think this? And this was kind of so that's why we started to see things like uh, China joining the World Trade Organization. Okay, the US invited them into it. But, you know, it was, it was one of those times when you started to to think, okay, the, this is a significant development. And because it then started to kind of project China's capability on the world stage to be obviously a major exporter. And and really it was the, the kind of renaissance of China after spending decades in the wilderness effectively. And then China and Russia did. And there were, there's these kind of interesting stories about border disputes in the Far East, and at some point China's going to invade. It's, it's nonsense. They signed agreements in 2004 that it was no longer an issue. No one cares about it. They've agreed to it. There's never going to be an invasion. This is just mythical Western stories because in the West, there is this belief, oh, it's a marriage of convenience between China and Russia. It's absolutely not. It's they're not even allies, they're more than allies. They, they share all their intelligence, except, okay, there's some stuff domestically, but internationally. And notice when Biden is trying to twist 
China's arm to persuade Putin to back off over Ukraine. And here's the intelligence. They gave it to the Chinese, and the Chinese just went, oh, thanks very much, and then gave it straight to the Russians. But they're obviously not just that. It's economically, financially. And the relationship is, like, I think, unprecedented. I don't think we will ever see a relationship between two nations like that. Well, certainly not. Maybe in 20, 30 years, the world will be radically different. And we'll be laughing about why we ever had issues with each other. But okay, that's that's speculation. It's decades in the future. But they have this relationship. So effectively, back then, they started to go think about the future. And okay, China principally was the Belt and Road. They were told, look, you need to resurrect the so-called old Silk Road. And you need to start building a multipolar world because the unipolar world that didn't really ever exist is dying anyway. And it may surprise people, but for me, the US was in decline from the, the Great Depression, which is nearly 100 years ago. You go, that's impossible. I, what do you mean? But for me, they were in decline. And even at Bretton Woods, they were in decline. They, they made stupid decisions where they decided to, to believe that they could roll out some unipolar world. But they're already in serious trouble. And it takes empires decades and, and even longer to decline just the Roman Empire. How long that took? Okay, different period in history, but it illustrates the point. So they sat there and, okay, we, we, we'll start to work on that. But we need to sort a whole bunch of internal mechanisms out. Russia was going through its own enormous rebuilding process uh, from the sort of Yeltsin era where the West went in and tried to asset strip. Russia and, and really seized control of it. And Yelp, someone I know, because they had dealings with the Russians, they weren't, again, government people. They were just the, the, the what I call the real architects of this real reset, not the fictitious World Economic Forum reset, which is not reality. And they were talking to Yeltsin and, uh, and you know, trying to impress upon him. And he made a point to them where he said, look, I may look like the village idiot who's drunk all the time, and I don't know what I'm doing. He said, but my job's quite simple. I'm here to make sure that uh, that the the things the, the West or the oligarchs feel, they think they're important, but they're not. And the real Russian wealth, they will never understand where it is or what it is, and they'll never get their hands on it. He said, because my successor will take it all back. And that's exactly effectively what Putin's done. He's taken it all back. The bits that he didn't take back, Russia doesn't want. And they protected the real wealth, as they call it, which for me was gold. Now, I mean, since the kind of era when the Tsars fell, there was enormous gold reserves. There's supposed to be huge gold reserves. And China and Russia have about 40,000 tons of gold each. I'm not talking about citizens having gold. I'm talking about the government's having gold. I mean, people say that's unbelievable, but China alone produces 600 metric tons a year, every year for the last 20 years. That's 12,000 tons, and it never gets exported. So the idea that we know the true figure of what China and Russia have, of course, is not reality. So Russia went through this process, so Putin's having to try and rebuild Russia. Now, 2008 came, and it's still at that point Russia had sort of ideas. I mean, spoke to Clinton at one point. In, in, well, not in 2008, obviously, and said, well, maybe we could become part of NATO. There was an idea we can integrate with the West, which was, with hindsight, they realized now it was ridiculous. But 
2008 changed everything, not just from an economic standpoint and the financial system, because then they finally really understood what they'd been told over a decade before that the West would collapse. They went, oh, actually, now we really understand why you said this. But what really angered the Chinese is they had, you know, happily taken up whatever treasuries the U.S. wanted buying. They took the treasuries and gave the U.S. a bunch of free money. Then in 2008, the U.S. literally ignored them and just pumped QE and, and, and all the things we know that happened in the aftermath to, and during the 2008 crisis, financial, great financial crisis or global financial crisis. And the Chinese were furious because they saw it as betrayal. That we, you know, you, you betrayed us. You've just now gone, okay, we don't care. We don't need you now. We'll just print a load of money. And that set the rot in that really started to accelerate like the development of the BRICS, uh, the Asian Infrastructure uh, Bank, et cetera, and all the other things we've seen for the last decade. It's interesting, as we said, when you look at 2014, what was one of the first things Russia and China did, signed the Holy Grail energy deal, all in non-dollar terms, I hasten to add. So the BRICS came into formation. Well, it was the BRIC, and then they obviously included South Africa. Okay, it's kind of huffed and puffed a bit, but it was a kind of embryonic form or the of what was to come in the future. And and therefore, for me, I I I made this point back in 2014 about a multipolar world that would replace the unipolar world, and people laugh and go, "This is garbage. It'll never happen." But it was very obvious, even at that point, there was some pretty significant developments between the two nations in terms, and also in terms of little subtle things like, okay, what's the BRICS? What what are they really looking to do here? And really, the acceleration happened post Ukraine. That's why I've made the point that in history, Ukraine will be seen as the moment that killed U.S. Germany and the U.S. dollar. And I've said that in 2015. I said Russia will play a very slow game, and at the right time, Russia will make a move, and history will see it to be that. And I don't doubt that ultimately it was the catalyst, because 2014, the Chinese looked at it, what was going on with Russia, and went, right, we really have to de-dollarize. We really have to work on an alternative financial system. Now, literally six years ago, I made a tweet saying Russia's finished fully testing a new financial system and it'd be rolled out around the time of what I what I would term was the reset. And I made the tweet and I started to resurrect it at the back end of last year because very quietly they came out the Chinese and the Russians and go, we they said we're working on an alternative financial system. They already have an alternative financial system that's being tested robustly. And at the appropriate time, they'll roll it out. What supplements that, apart from all these trade deals they've signed and agreements and, and rapidly de-dollarizing across the world, the world thinks everyone still uses dollars. It's far less than, than conventional wisdom understands. And everyone goes, well, it's only, what, 2.5-3% in SWIFT. But they've got six. They put all the non-dollar transactions and then in Renin, it goes through SIP. And it's enormous. Russia has MIA. Uh, Russia has the SPFS, which is their equivalent of SWIFT, 
which they brought out when the US were starting to talk about excluding them from SWIFT in 2014. So they can utilize that. So excluding them from SWIFT is a bit pointless anyway. As long as they, and they've, they've already said we have friendly nations and friendly institutions that will allow us to use SPFS. The other point is the digital yuan and the digital ruble. Now, I, again, was told about the digital yuan in 2015, and they said, look, don't say anything about it at the moment, but at some point we'll say, go and tell the world about it. And I did actually break the story there was going to be a digital yuan. And it would eventually be gold-backed. And everyone laughed and went, this is nonsense. It will never happen. And then the digital yuan appeared. And, and there's an enormous amount of testing gone inside China. They're also cross-border testing it with the UAE, Hong Kong, for example. And it's a lot more mature. And the whole basis of a digital yuan is for international trade. It is far more efficient far faster, far cheaper, and and far more transparent. And the, the proposal is we want, and they've admitted it. I mean, they've publicly said it so many times, we want to internationalize the world. We, we're not going to ever be a world reserve currency because there never will need to be in the future a world reserve currency. But we want to internationalize it. So here's the thing. We can be two trading nations. We can both utilize it in, in trade. If it's gold backed, which eventually will be, then obviously that gives it the, the currency to all nations have confidence in it. And already with China, you can, people think this isn't true, but you can settle oil in renminbi or you can have it in gold by the Shanghai Gold Exchange. So let's say you and I are two, I'm China and you're, I don't know, let's just say the United States and we trade and hopefully in the future the US will trade, have a not so big a trade deficit. So. So the trade deficit between you and I at a fixed price goal, uh, fixed price for gold, and I owe you owe me ten tons. We don't have to ship ten tons across the world. Okay, there's a problem of trust at the moment with gold. I appreciate that, but it's just vaulted, and it just gets literally electronically. It's now you own these ten ten uh, tons of gold. If you ever want them back, you can have them straight back. And that way you can settle trade in, in physical gold. And it's, and it's perfectly feasible to do this. And the Russians also are far more advanced in the digital ruble. They kind of talk like they're not, but they are. And that can also be utilized. And therefore, if you have a new financial system as well, that is completely clean. It doesn't have all the, ma I mean, we, we know the plumbing of the Western financial system. Is a complete nightmare. I use, I use the analogy. It's a billion pieces of string all interwoven, pulled really tight. You try and find one end of one piece of string with the other and understand what the ramifications are. And because we just built legacy systems on top of legacy systems, we've, we've created derivatives. There is an absolute minefield. We've created a euro dollar system that could involve 15 transactions. And intermediary parties and counter risk parties between two transactions at the end, between two parties, because there's all these intermediaries. It's, it's impossible. You cannot fix it. It's completely unfixable. You can't repair it. But you have a clean financial system that then can be rolled out and utilized. And 
we know that, uh, for example, the Asian nations, it's very easy for them to be able to bolt into it. Or nations in the Middle East, or even if Europe, okay, Europe's not in a position of wanting to do that. But these are processes that are already in place. And I think it was very telling. And even though, obviously, the ruble was going to get hammered today, and the Russians would raise interest rates to 20% from 9.5%, no surprise. What did the Russian Central Bank come out? For all the stories that they're out of their bankrupt, they've had all their assets stolen or frozen. They came out when, as of today, we're buying gold. They came out when we're buying all domestic gold production. That is the biggest hint you will ever get that they're saying. Why are we buying gold? Because here's the thing, and I, and I made a tweet about it, and as much as the US will, might want to think it's in the ascendancy, here's what the Russians could do. We're not going to do it today because the war with Ukraine's ongoing. They're obviously having to stabilize their own financial system, economy, banks, etc. But at some point in the future, they can come out and, and say, effectively, well, you know, our currency's been under attack, and therefore we have to provide stability. We, we're going to back our currency with gold. Well, what's the ramification? If Russia came out tomorrow with a gold-backed ruble, the dollar would, would be toast in the blink of an eye. And, and that's the, the point that the West or the United States fails to realize. Because A, they don't believe Russia's got the gold. B, they don't believe it's possible. Uh, no, no one believes you can have gold-backed currencies and, and an economy to function. Because we've lived in this Keynesian kind of fiat monetary system, which is a complete failure and doesn't work. And does that mean, I mean and I've made the point, and everyone knows I'm not a fan specifically of Bitcoin. But in terms of cryptocurrencies, in terms of blockchain, in terms of the future expansion, it's going to be enormous. I don't have any doubt whatsoever. So people get a bit kind of, well, hang on, you don't like Bitcoin, but you like the whole concept. Yes, I do. And I, I don't think it's you, that it'll be unique that one nation will, will have a digital currency, but it's a way of conducting international trade that's far more efficient, far more cost effective. That doesn't mean you can't have other uh, cryptocurrencies. What I do understand, and I know people in this realm who've told me there's whatever people like or dislike, there will be enormous regulation coming in for the crypto sector. That will probably make anger a lot of people. But the idea is if it's not regulated, it's not going to exist in the future. That may seem controversial, but that's my understanding based on people who understand what's going on. So, yes, I think it has an enormous future, and it will certainly be something very, very prevalent in, in, from a sovereign basis, but not solely a sovereign basis. I already know enough from people utilizing blockchain as a technology that very efficiently in, and even in things like agricultural projects. Sounds unbelievable, maybe for some people, but it's, it's a reality. So it's far from dead. It's, it's really just, in its birth pangs almost. It has decades of progress, but it is going to have to be something that will, will work in conjunction with a, financial, a, a sort of standardized financial system. But traditional financial systems will have to go through a revolution in themselves. And that's a huge, long process uh, in terms of how that comes about. 
But all this de-dollarization process came from the 90s, and it's just gathered momentum. And as you made the point, Russia and India are now trading in non-dollar terms. Rosneft sells oil to, to, to the West in non-dollar terms, like Europe in euros. Gazprom sells in rubles or euros for, for gas. I mean, these, these are all, you can go and check this out. Their websites are very clear about how they settle contracts. And that's not unique. You've got the Asian nations, which accounts for, uh, I, I think it's about 25% of global GDP or something. It's enormous, the amount of, uh, uh, and it's growing. I mean, Southeast Asia is the, the major growth, vertical growth market for me for the next decade. And they're obviously looking at utilizing, settling in non-dollar terms, in utilizing the digital yuan. I mean, obviously, UAE are looking at this, other Middle Eastern nations are. Does it, I mean, and it doesn't mean that the digital yuan will control the future. It won't. There'll be a digital ruble. And whether there's the, I don't think the euro will survive as it is, but let's just pluck a name out. There might be a digital euro, maybe even a digital dollar at some point. The, the concern I have is that people think that a, set, the cent, a central bank digital currency is some kind of controlling mechanism over people. Here's the problem with that. We already effectively live in a digital age. We have digital accounts. And I know people can say, well, they could cut you off, but we've just seen what happened in Canada. They don't need a central bank digital currency if they're really hell-bent on cutting you out of the financial system or freezing your bank account. They can do that. But they just typically don't. Okay, what's gone on in Canada is, is outrageous and um, not something we've seen, but the capability exists. They don't need to invent central bank digital currencies to do this. And I know people think it's all tied in as well with a cashless society. And I've made the point, we won't have a cashless society unless the world radically changes. And how the world would radically have to change is, first off, we'd have no narco trade. We wouldn't have drug cartels because that all functions in terms of cash. You wouldn't have all the disgusting things like human trafficking, organ trafficking, prostitution, and the other big one, financing international uh, terrorism. It's all done by cash. Effectively, how it operates is there's enormous pallets of cash inside banks, financial institutions. Someone gets a call, ship, I don't know, $100 million to somewhere in the world, and it's all cash because terrorists want cash. They're not going to take payments in a, in a digital currency because it's obviously for obvious reasons. Anything that's electronic can be traced. And so we would have to have a world that had no international terrorism. Okay, and at some point, maybe that's a, a utopian dream. We won't have a drug cartels. We won't have all these things that are totally dependent on cash. So that's why the cashless society argument is not reality. I mean, what I would say regarding Bitcoin, what I think it's done, it's, it's revolutionized people's thinking. It's made people think differently. It's, it's, and I think it will be remembered in history very fondly. But okay, for me, I don't think it has longevity because I think other technologies will replace it. Okay, mm-hmm. everyone has different opinions and that's fine. It's only my perspective on it. But but I do think it was a, a, at the very least a trailblazer for an enormously different way of how we conduct finance in the future, how financial systems will operate. But sovereign nations will never allow 
a currency to exist that uh, they have no oversight of, no control, no way of regulating because it would you would end up from their perspective, and there is some legitimate argument that it turns into the Wild West. And on that basis alone, they're not going to allow it to happen. And that main people who, who support it for Bitcoin might not like that, but unfortunately, that's the reality of where it's going. Does it mean Bitcoin is going to die a death? Not necessarily. And maybe it will find some function in the future. I don't know. But for me, unfortunately, if I'm honest, and I will always be straightforward, it's fiat speculation. And we see that recently when there's been a crisis, like uh, what's going on in Ukraine, it was getting dumped like equity markets were getting dumped. And I think it's been hijacked by Wall Street and other big corporations. And it's not what it was, you know, when, when it got to 20,000 in 2017, it was largely the likes of you and I. I don't think that's the case now. And for me, that's, that's very unfortunate. And, but when it's controlled by, by, by big financial institutions and Wall Street, that for me is an enormous problem. But it is certainly the catalyst and it, and it's revolutionized thinking. And in, and in the next 10, 20 years, people will remember Bitcoin, whatever it is at that point. And say that was the defining moment when, because there's no doubt it shaped the way China's thinking about things, the way Russia's thinking about things, about cross-border trade, about simplifying the process. And obviously, from their perspective, it's very cost-effective, extremely fast. And it's a fantastic way of transparency in trade and also as a settlement process and why, okay, it's controversial for some people to say you can link it to gold but that's the intention and of course they'll have a gold back to where and a gold back ruble and one digital ruble will equal one you know digital uh well sorry one conventional shall we say uh per ruble and the same with china one digital where there's one conventional um uh, uh rmb the issue is then they've said we're not replacing the traditional currency we're not replacing cash okay it might we might find in the future things change to some degree but at the moment that's the state's intention but it's really part of a bigger wider financial system that is clean it's not being utilized they've done testing on it it works fine but it this is the bold move uh that they're gonna have to at some point they're gonna have to switch all this off because if they're going to be have a viable, credible alternative to the dollar and and SWIFT and the financial system in the West, this has to work. The question is, when do they make that go live? Because if they get it wrong, then it's the for me, it's the end of the multipolar. The multipolar world's gonna die. And then if that dies, the what's that there's just this gigantic vacuum. So it's got to be rolled out at the right time, but I think the U.S. has accelerated that process through what's happened in Kiev, uh, sorry, in Ukraine, and because they're forcing Russia's hand, they're effectively saying we're trying to squash you out of existence because it's 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 total economic warfare. They can survive it, and I don't doubt Russia will. But it's accelerated the process. Hence, today, Russian central bank home we're buying gold. People say, "Well, haven't they got enough gold?" Well, for me, they can never have enough gold. So in terms of what they're proposing to do. And therefore, it will accelerate this process. I think large parts of the world are fully aware of this. And at the right time, 
when the Western financial system inevitably collapses and what that means in reality. Perhaps we have to be careful because it can mean many, many things. But the rest of the world's going to be going, well, you, we need an alternative. We have an alternative. And tellingly, Putin made an interesting statement, um, which is a bit tangential, but it's, quite, I think, quite telling. When they were making a decision about Donbass and whether they wanted to you know, recognize its independence, they did that very public meeting where he had all these key figures in the Kremlin. And as one of his, who was it, I, finance people or intelligence? I can't remember. Some guy called Sergei. And he kept probing, probing and going, Sergei, be, be very plain speaking. And eventually he got the answer out of it. And he said, thank you very much. And it seems by all accounts that that was the defining moment when Putin went to, to all these people, right, you've got a choice to make. You're either going to go with, you're either going to choose the failing unipolar world, because that's where the alternative is, or you're going to choose the future. This is going to be the catalyst that finally pulls all these pieces of the puzzle together in terms of the multipolar. And, and they obviously decided, yes, they were going to sign this agreement and, and we'll see how history pans out. By all accounts, he then got all the oligarchs. There are some oligarchs still in Russia, although they're obviously Russian sympathetic ones, not Western ones trying to pillage the, the nation. And he gave them the same choice. You, are you going to come? Are you going to go and stay with the, the unipolar world and, and its failure? Or are you coming with us? And do you understand what that means? Now, okay, I don't know what the subsequent conversations were. But I think that's why it's seen as a pivotal moment because Russia knows that when it invaded, the US was going to react. It knew that SWIFT would eventually be, be part of the equation. It might not, I don't know, it might not have entered their thought process. It would involve the central bank, but I don't think they're remotely surprised. The central bank seemed to be very calm and quite measured in, in its response. It went, we can manage this, we can... We can provide liquidity for banks. We can stabilize the situation. We're not, and they, they weren't bluffing. They, they, they were concerned and obviously having to manage the process, but they weren't extremely fearful. So I think there's an idea that this would be the catalyst. And, and I think it is, it's the early stages of, of the final leg of the recognition that there has to be an alternative and we're here. And I think what's driving the U.S., in terms of its foreign policy, is the Western financial systems creaking extremely badly? And and the risk is it's from the US perspective is it could be it could be literally that the tipping point where it completely fails. I mean, we've seen in recent years where we had the repo crisis in 2019. That was a huge moment when the banks were in massive trouble. Fed was an enormous bailout of banks. The problems were surfacing in 2018, and then they just got worse through 2019. There's an argument, and I'm not being conspiratorial because I I don't think the pandemic's a gigantic conspiracy like some people think. That doesn't mean there wasn't enormous amounts of (coughs) things done that should never have been done, of course, from my perspective. But the point is, around the time, March 2020, just prior to that sort of Late 2019, for me, there was warning signs again. And what did we see early 2020? Let's just bail everything out. I mean, the, the entire economy was bailed out. So 
the writing's been on the wall for a long time. We know now we're starting to see all the inflationary pressure, etc. So if the West is, a, is extremely mindful of the fact that the Western financial system is creeping very badly, the banking system isn't, we've got all this massive inflationary problem, then and the Russians will be fully aware of it. So I, I'm not saying they invaded Ukraine for this purpose, but they knew when they did this that the, Rus- the American reaction would be to make the steps they've made. They've made those steps, and they've set this ball roll. And there's no doubt um, that if Russia needs any assistance, China will bankroll it to, to whatever extent. But the fact they made the announcement before Christmas about this new financial system they're developing in inverted commas, I think when the U.S. heard that, that was a red, red line moment for them. Just a small point. Back in early 2016, someone said to me, the, the, the Chinese are going to roll out a gold back to where? Uh, because there was huge problems in the Western financial system back in late 2015, early 2016. Apparently, they talked to the Americans who said, no, you're not, because that's a declaration of war. So they walked away and went, okay, we're not doing it. Well, things have changed now because of Russia's military prowess. The, the US is is very vulnerable. It's, it can't use the military as, as a weapon like it could have done back in 2016. Okay, and it doesn't have the financial weapons now to, to do anything. I mean, really, in essence, Ukraine is its last throw of the dice. It's played all its hand. I mean, what else could it do to Russia? It can't do anything else. I mean, apart from World War Three, which I mean, won't happen, but that they've reached the, the extent of what they can do. They've played all their hand, and that's desperation as well. So when does the Western financial system blow? We don't. It's a, for me, I always talk about things as event-driven, not time-driven. I think we, we've just had a major flip of a domino in the event-driven scenario, and we now have to see how it plays out. But first off, there's Ukraine. The needs, from a Russian perspective, they need to deal with that. They need to stabilize their economy, their financial system, et cetera. But in the coming months, I think we'll start to see more and more developments now. The question is, what happens to the West in, in, in the process? Because for me, uh, there's always this constant bailout going on inside the markets to try and stabilize them. I'm not being conspiratorial, but I think it's very clear gold and silver markets get smashed regularly. And the exchange stabilization fund is there to protect the dollar at all costs, but also it's to protect everything, all the facets that go around that. So for me, whenever we start to see these massive dumps in the equity markets, note how they all, they tend to get bounced back and they're propped up because the ESF's propping everything up. But in the process, that's costing enormous amounts of money. I mean, I people said, no, it can't be a trillion dollars overnight. So yeah, it probably is because it's the, they're not just back, trying to backstop what's going on in the US. There's Europe. We don't know what, I mean, the derivatives complex is so enormous, it's so convoluted. Again, it's the billion pieces of string. So everything's constantly having to be stabilized to prevent it collapsing. But the problem is you can't keep doing that. It's a dim, law of diminishing return. And as they do this, it's creating even more and more problems. So at some point, it's going to go down now. The other point with this, I think, worth making 
China and Russia have always been mindful for years that they're not seen to be the ones to take the Western financial system down for obvious reasons. Because the world would then say, well, the Western world would say China caused it, Russia caused it. Here's the point when the US has put these onerous sanctions on Russia. Russia can legitimately say, well, we need to protect our financial system, our economy. So let's have a process. Maybe at some point they can legitimately then come out and go, we're having a gold back removal, knowing damn well what the consequences will be. But the US has, has, has slit its own throat. And by context, European Union slit its own throat because it's played all its hand and it's been so aggressive. And then to tell its people, well, it's only a minor problem for us, but we're going to cripple Russia. If that doesn't happen and the West gets crippled, and then Russia can come out and say this quite legitimately because we're under attack. And then it has the catalytic effect of what it will do to the dollar, et cetera. And they can, they've legitimized it. So in a way, the, the, the US or NATO and Europe have given Russia a free hand to do what they've wanted it without actually any repercussions because you can't accuse them of doing something when everyone knows that we're doing this to crush Russia. And I mean, if it doesn't happen, as we say, for all the reasons, they can't sell that to the public that the Russia was responsible. So that's another reason why they've made a catastrophic error of judgment. Now, does it mean it will happen? No, we can't say with certainty, but there is enough early noises already to suggest that they're ready to roll out whatever they're intending to roll out. And, uh, and the multipolar world's going to go with them. And that's why Putin made this distinction between the unipolar world and the multipolar world. You've got to choose your side. Well, at the moment, Europe's chosen its side. It's gone with the Americans. It shouldn't have gone with the Americans. It should have gone with rotated east, put Nord Stream 2 in, and then repro had reproachment. With, with Russia, but that's a whole separate subject. But they've made their decision. The UK's made its decision. Nations like South Korea seem to have made their decision. So they've just gone, we're sticking with, with the Americans and the Argentinians, the Brazilians, large parts of Africa, Southeast Asia. Notice, apart from Singapore, not one Southeast Asian nation has come out and criticized or said anything about Russia and uh, invading Ukraine. Even the Brazilians have just come out going, well, we're not taking any sides, which effectively means we're taking Russia. So I'd rather like China's very diplomatically gone. We, we don't like illegal sanctions, but we believe in, you know, having diplomacy because they're not going to say we, we support Russia because they're worried about the backlash of Europe and, and trade. But of course they support Russia. So nations are taking whatever side of the fence they're going to be on. The ones in the failed unipolar world will have to live with the consequences, and those moving to the other side will will make, for me, are making the right decision. And it's the question is, are they aware of the, their integration? Do they know when they need to integrate? Are they even in a position at this point to integrate? And that's part of this whole kind of event-driven scenario where there's all these different things that, are happening at the moment, and at some point they all have to coalesce and come together. But for me, I think Ukraine will be Ukraine 2014 was the catalyst, but Ukraine 2022 was, yeah, as you say, the final nail in the coffin lid for US hegemony, the US empire, the US dollar. Whew. 
Heavy times. Heavy times. <laughs> it's, uh... Yeah, no, 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 probably, but that's the problem. I get on a roll with these things, and you, you can't, I could just talk for, I mean, I, I can't be mindful going, well, I should stop going, no, but there's this to say. I mean, there's, we could talk, you can talk about all these things in far more greater detail, and that's what I've done with my own podcast for, since September 2016, was to lay out all these pieces of the jigsaw puzzle as things happen. This, and it wasn't really till probably the back end of last year, because I've had some people who've subscribed the whole time, and they said, oh, now I'm seeing it all. Now all these pieces are all pulling together, and that was a big indication of how the multipolar world was evolving. Because previously you'd say something, this is happening in the Middle East, or this is happening in Africa, or between China and Russia. People going, well, that's interesting, but where's this going? And of course, we laid out what the thesis was of where it was going. And now it's all pulling together. And for me, that's very indicative of the fact that, that obviously there is this major shift that's really gathering momentum. And on, for us, in I mean, just like Twitter, I mean, we had a reasonable following, but since Ukraine happened, it's exploded. And I think it's because people have gone, hang on, they were saying all these things. And now they're happening. Okay, we need to go. Or maybe because people are sat on different sides of the fence and we're sat in the middle and they're going, well, we need someone who might have some answers for this. And for us, it's been a very logical process in what's happening. I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I don't talk on a daily basis about military operations because I don't know. I'm not, a, I'm not a military person. But I know in broad terms what the what they're trying to do and why I think it's the right thing to do. But I think for us, it's been a kind of quite a bizarre week because we've suddenly been inundated with so many people getting in touch. I mean, we used to have quite a lot, but we're just drowning in it. And it was for me a kind of I think a a vindication of all the years we've done this and how we've now got to the point where. It does all make sense, and it increasingly makes sense to people. And uh, in a way, it's kind of been a long period of time for this to happen. And and a lot of people along the way went, I, I just can't see this ever happening. I go, it will. But it, you can't just force certain things to happen. Even I mean, an empire's in the grand scheme of things, the the collapse or the demise of the U.S. empire in in, for me, in historical terms, is like the speed of light. Because a lot of it's really only started happening in the last 10, 15 years, prior to 2008. I mean, there were problems in the 90s, whatever, but in the grand scheme of, of empires collapsing, it's extremely fast, but for a lot of people, it's painfully slow. But as I always say to people, be careful what you wish for, because... There is going to be consequences. There is going to be a fallout from this. And we also have to factor in the United States, what, 340 million people. The UK is nearly 70 million people. We have to factor in how are they going to deal with the fallout of this. And that's a big concern. How are people going to react to what's coming? And therefore, it is be careful what you wish for because... You just never know what the consequences will be, and 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 therefore there is this uncertainty. But you know, hopefully, there's enough people in the West who who can 
we don't have the political people. I mean, we talk about what goes on in the US, the, the UK political system, an embarrassment. I mean, we've seen recently ministers saying really absolutely high octane things they should never have said in the context of where we are. So where's the political uh, infrastructure or well, people who are going to be able to deal with what's coming? That's a huge problem because whatever we think of Putin, when, well, okay, and Yeltsin did was just stopping the whole thing collapsing, but we don't have a Putin who has that diamond dynamism. Whatever we think of him, whatever, whether we hate him or whatever, he has actually achieved a lot in terms of progress inside Russia. And whether you loathe Xi Jinping or not, what's happened in China in the last 20 years is astonishing progress. How does that, and again, we're back to the thing you said that people go, well, you must be a communist or you're a Chinese sympathizer. No, this is a statement of fact. Just look at what's happened economically, financially, et cetera, and geopolitically. I mean, it's an astonishing progress, but we don't have that leadership. Or it's not obvious we have that leadership. So we face difficult times, but as a good friend of mine said, who's obviously now in the US, but was originally, he was born in Russia and moved to the US in his late teens. And knows all about what went on in the in the Soviet Union, obviously the collapse of, of the Soviet Union. He said, there'll always be these situations where you get this happening, but in the end, it will resolve itself. And I don't doubt it will resolve itself. But it's a question, do we have the people to make that happen far sooner, obviously, rather than later? Yeah, I don't think Biden's going to be that person, but uh, no, hopefully. no, 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 definitely not. Hopefully, uh, hopefully somebody can step up to the plate here. And before we wrap up here, I will say, as a as a Bitcoin podcast, I, I, and I understand the way you explain it, it seems that you think Bitcoin is going to be regulated into irrelevance. Uh, I would just note that Bitcoin, as a P two P network, is designed to protect against that. Um, and I, I wouldn't sleep on Bitcoin. We don't have to get too immersed in a debate on the merits and potential success path of Bitcoin. But I, I do want to note that it is specifically designed to uh, withstand a regulatory attack. Um, and, and I don't disagree that they're coming. Uh, somebody who's heavily invested in the space and mining Bitcoin and investing in Bitcoin companies. It is something that is top of mind at all times. Um, I would say, like, I think I really do agree with you what you said that Bitcoin specifically has created a shift in people's perceptions of the, the monetary landscape and finance. And I would, and I would also take that a bit further and say we'll continue to do that. And even though Russia and China are, are going to usher out their uh, gold-backed digital currencies, and it's a plan that they've had in motion arguably since the 90s, Russia specifically. I think Bitcoin is going to throw a wrench in that in that vacuum that you described. I think a, a lot of value will be sucked into Bitcoin because people will recognize, yes, maybe the gold-backed digital ruble and yuan are better than the, the, the fiat US dollar system that ruled the world um, you know, for an extended period of time. Uh, they are still granularly controlled currencies by governments, and that, that yes, is what typically leads us to these uh, overextensions and in, in the financial space specifically. Mm -hmm. I mean, the only thing I will, look, I will add to that is 
I've already expressed my own opinion. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't mean it's definitely going to happen. And and you know that's the whole point. Of this I'm not sitting there going, this is this is written in stone, and far from it. So you know, I want to add that because I don't want people to think you know that I'm, I'm trying to present something as as a gift. I mean, the world's in a highly high state of flux. So who knows what what will happen in the future? That's only the regulatory side is the thing that I think is is a problem, but you might well be absolutely correct. Let's be, you know, the interest of being objective about things. Yeah, I am you know, personally, I'm, I'm not convinced, but it doesn't make that doesn't make it a reality. And as I've said, that it has been an enormous catalyst in a positive way. I think apart from anything else, it's woken people up to the to the reality that the current financial system is an abysmal thing. And for that, we should be eternally grateful that it has because 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you tried to explain that to anyone and they were like, what? So, so in essence, it's been a very positive in that sense. So, and, and, you know, and often something that's a catalyst for something is something that will achieve. And it certainly has achieved that objective. We, that is undeniable. So I think it's, I wanted to make the point because I don't want to feel like, I'm just savaging Bitcoin, and for that reason, I'm not. I'm not you know, trying to do that by any stretch, and I'm just trying to offer an alternative perspective, which only time will tell whether that's a reality or not. But it, it's not set in stone because because I've made the point. Obviously, not. No, I, I very much appreciate your alternative perspective on this. It's always good to to question your priors and and, and have. Not heated debate, but good, honest conversation about these these hard questions about Bitcoin's future, the world's futures, whatever it may be. And again, like I said in the beginning of the the episode, I'd like to reiterate here, just because we're describing the current state of the world as it is from a factual <laughs> base, like here is the state of the world, here's what's going on in Ukraine, here's Russia's perspective. Does it not mean that we are Russian apologists or, or Putin apologists? This is I wanted to have this conversation mm-hmm. as an American who was extremely, again, disheartened and enraged that the, our political structure has gotten so complacent that this has been allowed to happen. And I think it should be, if it isn't already for most people who are listening to this, a, a giant wake-up call. Like the, the emperor wears no clothes right now, particularly the Western Empire and its emperors, if you will. It's it, 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 This should be... It, it, it's frankly an extremely frightening moment for anybody in the Western world uh, that should drive the point home that our leaders are either incompetent, complacent, nefarious, combination of the three. Uh, mm-hmm. What they're doing is not working out in our best interest at the end of the day. And that's why I am so happy that you agreed to come on and why I was very uh, very adamant about getting this perspective out there is because it is not being it's not being portrayed in the mainstream obviously they are they are controlled by um the, the incompetent political class to an extent and so uh, i'm extremely thankful uh, that you that you agreed to come on paul and um no paul. thank you more importantly no thank you you know it's it's a two-way street and you've given me the opportunity to to come on and and discuss, you know, alternative perspectives. I mean, there's, there's a whole myriad of things, other things to discuss, I think, in the future that 
And I echo your, your sentiment. And I always say this, which, but I'll make the point again. The world will be infinitely richer with a great America amongst equals, meaning a great America that isn't encumbered by all the political nonsense and, and worse, that doesn't have this crazy foreign policy, that actually understands how it can become a, a vibrant internal economy and all the challenges that faces. But if America does that, and it will need to cooperate with the world, America will be a much better place, but the world will be far richer to have an America like that. Now, if anyone, and that's why we're not, I'm not a Putin apologist or a Xi apologist or anything. I, I recognize the achievements that, that they've made. I recognize why they're doing things, but I'm not agreeing that anyone should go to war. I don't want anyone to go to war. All we're saying is this is why Russia's gone to war. But it's not an endorsement. I made the point on Twitter. I don't want to see a single drop of Ukrainian blood or Russian blood or American or British or anyone else shed. Because for me, one loss of life is tragic. And but but we have to comment on what we're seeing and we have to be objective about what's happening. But it doesn't again, I think sometimes people think when you say about this, well, you're very pro-Russian, you you want to see Ukrainians die. My goodness, I don't want to see any. And I wish the war, the war would end yesterday or never started. And we weren't in this situation, but we are where we are. And, and to do the whole subject justice, we have to be brutally honest and not pretend that something's happening that isn't or accepting a narrative. But it's not in any way, shape or form condoning what what Russia's doing. And the other flip side to this, I've spent 15 years or longer writing to Western governments about the 2008 financial crisis and warning them they ignored it. I wrote to them, don't do QE, zero interest rate policy long term. They ignored me. I warned them about the ascent of China. I said, don't have a trade war with China because the US will suffer enormously. You, you know, the whole inflationary thing and how eventually these inflationary bubbles will burst all things. I've tried to do my best to raise awareness at government level in Western nations. But as ever, you, get, you either ignored or you get a plight. Well, that's an interesting perspective, but we're not thinking about that at this time. So for me, it's whilst we're trying to do what we can in the Western world and, and not succeeding in terms of raising awareness at a level where someone listened. On the flip side, we can't ignore the rise of China. I mean, I could have pretended China wasn't. And here we are today, and it's self-evident. And then people would have said, well, hang on, you, you just admitted discussing what China was doing. Uh, and yes, I've worked there. I've spent time there. I have probably a very different perspective of what China is, my own personal experience. But that's not the point. We just have to be objective that whether we like it or not, the West is descending rapidly and the East is ascending. And that doesn't just include China, Russia, it includes Southeast Asia and all the poles around the world. I mean, Africa's uh, behind, but eventually Africa will become a stronger pole. And the world's evolving, the world's changing, and we have to observe that and comment on it. And just because we're saying the US is declining doesn't mean we don't like you know, uh, the United States is just sadly a statement of fact. And, you know, I wish it wasn't. And and maybe in 
the near, hopefully the relatively near future, we can talk about positive developments in the US and how the US is making these strides on its building relationship. And it's really driving its economy and addressing all the fundamental internal problems, which are enormous, not just in the US, but the UK and Europe, and actually doing something about it. It'd be great for us to talk about that. And we won't be talking about the rise of China and Russia and what they're doing. They'll just be, well, they're just doing what they're doing. But the, the real fundamentally interesting part is we can talk about developments in the West, and that would be fantastic if we could do that. I completely agree. It's again, you can, if you're listening to this, this is an attempt to get people to get their heads out of the sand. It's, we, we have the ability to, to do great things here in the US and in the Western world at large. It's just we don't, I mean, the political class does not have the willingness or the mindset to, to unlock the, the intellectual capital that exists on on the lands of the West. And I hope this is a turning point that wakes more people up. Uh, I am, I, despite uh, the depressing nature of the world right now and the state of the world, I am extremely optimistic. I think people are beginning to wake up and realize that that individuals really need to take control and, and take control of their own destiny and bring forth about a better future in a grassroots nature and not depend on the political class. I think that's probably, it's dismaying to, to watch happen, but it's actually probably a good thing in the long run, the, the collapsing confidence in the political institutions here in the United States specifically. Um, at the federal level is actually a net benefit in, in the long term. It should be lighting a fire under people's asses to to begin taking control of their own destiny and ignoring a, a federal government that does is completely incompetent and arguably doesn't have anybody's best interests at heart. Um, so, me, thank you again for coming on, Paul. Where can we find out oh, more about the series? Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure, and thank you. I, you know, it's a, it's you know it's it's good to, to for us for me to, to to do this. Okay, it's an opportunity, but uh, but you know it's it's good for us to, to have this discussion because we both have a, I think a far broader perspective and understanding than than other people do in the West. And this is you know it, it's part of understanding because at some point in the future we're going to have to get along with people. I mean, I don't think people fundamentally have an issue with Russians, this Putin, but we need to get to a point where we don't have these kind of divisions between nations and and we just get along and cooperate. And and that's what the multipolar world's achieving and achieving spectacularly well. And and because that's the future. If we're going to evolve as as a as a as a planet, then they're the important choices we have to make. And and I am. I mean, I'm. I'm to be honest. I've never been depressed or anxious. I'm always see a better future. It's coming. And I think in younger generations, I'm. Ve- I mean, a lot of people are very, very sort of down on younger people. And, and but I'm seeing some really positive things. And where, and if that's channeled positively, then then it augurs well for the future. And because they they have a different attitude and perspective on the world than older generations do. And okay, some people will say there's certain aspects to it, or there's a lack of maturity, but it's life experience. The only difference between me and someone half my age is life experience. 
but I am enthused. I think there is a change of attitude in the West, and it's starting to permeate through older generations, and hopefully eventually we reach a critical mass that, that recognizes this, and, and then we do have this huge explosion of change, which is coming. And hopefully we're in a better position to exploit that positively by people having that different mindset already before all the challenges that are coming. So we don't get a situation when this happens and then it's dog eat dog and I'm going to blame this person because that person caused it or whoever it is. We, we need to start having that change so people will look at the situation when things happen and go, okay, I want to grab this opportunity with both hands and do something constructively and positively about that in the future. Yeah. <clears throat> Give peace a chance. Free and open trade. It's the uh, yes, absolutely. The to, the yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The way to do it. Um, uh, it's uh, I. And again, this conversation is probably one of the best we've had in quite a while on this podcast, and I would love to do well, it again in the future. Oh um, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, we can. There's a whole bunch of things to discuss. But I mean, so yeah, no, it's a pleasure. Thank you. I I really appreciate it. It's been great, and it's been wonderful to have this discussion and opportunity so it's it's reciprocated as it should be where um where can i send my listeners to to find out more about the serious report what you're doing where they can subscribe to your okay newsletter? the right obviously we have the the twitter account which we're pretty active on that at the serious report obviously all one word we have a website the serious report.com now we've we haven't put as many articles. We used to put a lot of articles. A lot of them are old, but they are very relevant to today. The, the main body of work we do is our own podcast subscription service, which we do the equivalent of five lots of 20 minutes a week. Uh, sometimes, often we put two of them together, uh, but it's equivalent to five episodes. And we do that pretty much every week all year round. This covers economics, geopolitics, finance. It's just really trying to lay a map out as to what's actually unfolding in the world. And we make it extremely cheap because we could charge 10 times more, but we don't because we believe it should be extremely affordable. The plan originally was not to charge anything, but we got demonetized on every single platform. This was six years ago now. So we couldn't do that. So we went, well, we'll charge something that's very cheap. It's $4.75 a month. Or you can subscribe for a year and get a month free, and that's the ba- that's where we put a lot of all the work in. And, um, it's very detailed. It people say they have to listen to it two or three times sometimes because I make the point of really just sticking to the the facts, the interpretation, and keep don't try and keep. It's not like a regular interview. It's very concise and uh, and. We think it's good, great value for money, and we we you know we've had very long term subscribers. We're up to, I think it's, we've done thirteen hundred and seventy three episodes now. Like crap. We had one person a year ago who went back and listened to every one of them, which is <laughs> I felt like giving them a gold medal or something. I went, don't 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 waste the time going all the way back, but. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's the basis of what we do. We, we're going to put more content on the website. It's just the time factor and the amount, the amount of time we have to spend because we have to, I get so much stuff to look through and a lot of it's rubbish and we just 
tossing one side. Some things are interesting, but we have to park it because it's not that point in the chronology of event. There's no point mentioning it because it'll just get lost in in everything that's happening. So, um, yeah, that's the basis of what we do. Well, thank you for doing what you do. Freaks at home listening to this. It's the Sirius Report, S-I-R-I-U-S. That's how you spell Sirius. Um, yes. Go check out what Paul is building. Listen to the podcast, subscribe. Uh, and Paul, again, thank you. I think people are going to well, get Well, thank you too. I really yeah. appreciate it. People are going to get a ton of value out of this. I'm very excited for it. Um, I hope you enjoy your night here over in London. Um, so yes, thank you. you. Have a, and and have you a good too. Night. All right. Thank you. Peace and love, freaks. Yeah, all the best. See ya.